Are you all right? Yes. Would you excuse me for one minute, dear? Oh, of course, Doctor. Igor? <clears throat> May I speak to you for a moment? Of course. Sit down, won't you? Thank you. No, no, up here. Oh, thank you. Now, that brain that you gave me, was it Hans Delbrooks? No. Ah, good. Uh, would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry. I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. Abby normal. I'm almost sure that was the name. <laughs> Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain into a seven and a half foot long, 54 inch wide gorilla? Is that what you're telling me? Quick, quick, get it up! What? Yes, Elibus, yes! Back to the bin. Hey, excuse me. Sorry. Oh, I can see where this is. We going. have the Doctor Bill monster with us here today. <laughs> So I so so wait would Alvin be Doctor Bill's monster? <laughs> now you might be Alvin's monster. I can I cut wanna, out Thomas brain and put it in Alvin. I don't want to <laughs> talk about Doctor Bill's monster. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, this is a family show, guys. Come on. Anyway, hello everybody. Welcome to Back to the Bins. And if you haven't figured it out, I got an unruly bunch of monster fans here with me today. In addition to our usual cohorts of crime, Doctor Bill. Who, who knows what he's doing in his garage and what, what things he's bringing to life. Scott Halloween Gardner. It's alive. Alive! Maybe not. And then <laughs> okay. as special guests today, we were unable to get Jimmy, so we have Gene Hendricks. Good evening. And... I can't hear Jimmy. After only getting 30, 40, 50 requests from him, we're having Luke Giaconetti back on. I brought him back to life once. It was a simple enough matter to do it again. <laughs> and this is week two of horror month here at back to the bins and this week, week two, we are Italy? featuring the frankenstein monster hey you you Frank told me frankenstein so i i got something about the doctor <laughs> what's that i said you just told me it was frankenstein so i have something about the doctor that works for me too <laughs> Yeah, we need to get that out of the way at the beginning of this. How, how many of you guys are bugged whenever they call the monster Frankenstein and not, you know, not making it clear that that Frankenstein's the doctor, not the monster? Yeah, that bugs the heck out of me. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think we're all nerdy enough to get bothered by that, I would imagine. <laughs> which which is one of the reasons that I always loved the 
Hammer Frankenstein series of films with Peter Cushing is that specifically they are in fact talking about Baron von Frankenstein in all of those films when right. they talk about Frankenstein created woman, the revenge of Frankenstein, Frankenstein must be destroyed. So right. Wasn't Christopher Lee the monster in most of those movies? Most of he was movies. the monster in yeah. he was a monster in the first one. He was not the monster in Revenge, nor was, in huh? he was not the monster in Revenge. Lee is not in a lot of the uh, Frank the later Frankenstein films because they start getting a little strange. David Prose plays the monster a couple of times. Yeah, in um, Evil Frankenstein and Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. I thought he was oh, the man. monster from Hell in in that one though. Was he Frankenstein? Or, I mean, was he the monster? No, Rose. Ah! Yeah, Rose yeah, is the monster. Sure <laughs> yeah. Hmm. And uh, let's see, Must Be Destroyed doesn't have a monster, and Created Woman is, obviously, it's a, it's a chick, so who's the monster. So. See, whenever you discuss the Frankenstein monster to me, my mind automatically goes to the universal. Of course, Karloff. Karloff, Glenn Strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Glenn Strange is excellent. Unfortunately, he gets saddled with films that don't require him to do a whole lot. Um, in the two house films, he mostly lays on his back for the majority of the running time that he's on the screen. And then in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which we talked about a long time ago on the vault of startling monster or tales of terror. When he did get to do a lot in the end of that film, he uh, actually tripped over a camera cable and broke his ankle. So Lon Chaney Jr. does some of his some of the monsters more well-known scenes in that film, like throwing the female scientist out the window. Throwing Sandra, the stone-cold bitch, out the window. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll I tell you, that is my favorite Frankenstein movie. Which one? Mm-hmm. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I, and I, I love several of them, but that's my favorite because that is probably... I don't want to overrate it. I would say it's in my top 20 movies of all time, though. I was going to say fa- 10. I don't think it quite makes that, but top 20. My favorite scene from that is when the monster sees um, uh, Lou, and he goes... Well, yeah. <laughs> And he's afraid of him. He's like, oh, he thinks I'm Dracula. <laughs> now, I know that one's called Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but isn't that the one that has basically all of the universal monsters in it? It's got the werewolf, it's got Dracula, and it's got okay. Frankenstein. And then for a very, very brief moment, it's got the Invisible Man. Invisible Is Man, it? yeah. Okay, yeah. So I, I was trying to think if that's the one I had seen. Yeah, I have seen that one. I like Is that. It- Vincent yeah. Price, the Invisible Man, or the voice yeah. of him? The voice of, yes. yes voice of is, him. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to One, introduce the, myself. I'm the Invisible Man. <laughs> the, uh, the Really, I agree with you, Paul. That is one of the best of the universe. Actually, of most of those, most of the series, that's a good entry for all three of those monsters. And part of it is that, you know, it plays the comedy aspects for comedy, but then it plays the monsters straight. Yeah, it never, it take, never makes the monsters foolish. No, and if, and if you right. take that basic plot... And remove, you know, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello from it. The plot still works. That yeah, well, then it becomes happens. then it becomes the uh, Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. Right, essential. Yeah, just with Dracula in it, also. Yes. But uh, no, I mean that's that's it's just a, there's a, there's, a, there's a reason why that works. I remember I was on a, a job a couple of years ago, and I was talking to one of my coworkers, and uh, her name was uh, Miss Arletta. Miss Arletta, she I would say was probably about. She was probably in her 50s. You know, she had uh, kids that were uh, in, you know, graduating from high school, going on to college and all that. And we got to talk that scared us when we were kids. And she and I said, one of the movies that scared me when I was a kid was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I said specifically the very end where the Frankenstein monster is walking down the pier that's on fire. I said that mm-hmm. used to scare the hell out of me when I was a little kid. And she laughed and she said, that's funny because a movie that scared her when she was a little girl was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, specifically when the monster throws, as we said, Sandra the Stone Cold Bitch out the window. 
She said as soon as he'd do that, she was behind the couch. She was done every time. <laughs> that that movie was was my introduction introduction to the uh, Universal Monsters. So I think that's one of the reasons why it has such a special place for me. Besides the fact that you know it was just on on the regular rotation of Sunday morning Abbott and Costello shows that they showed on Channel Eleven every week, and uh, I just I, I don't know I just like I said that that is my favorite of the Abbott and Costello movies, and it's my favorite of the monster movies at the same time. Oh, my favorite one of the of the classic ones of the Universal ones would always be Frankenstein versus the Wolf, or I think it's Meets the Wolfman. I think it's the name of that one. Um, but I love that one. It's got a for one thing, it's got a beautiful poster. I've always loved the poster for that. But it's a good movie too, and I mean it does justice to both of the monsters. You know, I was watching uh, some of the um, bonus features on one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies recently. I forget which one, and it was interviewing one of the guys uh, involved. You know, in the making of those movies and talking about you know how unprecedented it was. You know, to be doing this project and. It is and everything, but I think people forget about things like the Universal Monsters that did it, you know, back in the 40s, you know, where they they had these these great characters that they introduced over time. And then eventually they did begin to team up and, and you know, fight each other in different movies and stuff. And I always thought that was really cool. They did, oh, yeah. you know, it was a different era and they did play a little fast and loose with the continuity. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, to, you know, character died. Oh, he's back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, at first right, uh, they they felt the need to kind of jump through hoops to explain, and then after a time, I you know if you if you ever watch those movies in sequence, pretty quickly you realize that ah, after a time they just didn't care. It's like, yep, sure, he died yeah. at the end of the last one, and here he is again in the next one. And after a time, they just stopped even trying to explain away. You know, how was he back <laughs> yeah. again? He just was. You know. Yeah, uh, it, it's not it's not Frankenstein monster related, but one of my favorites is from the later. Mummy films. When uh, by the time uh, Lon Chaney Jr. was playing Chorus, he ends up at the end of one film going into a swamp in Louisiana, and the next film takes place 30 years later, putting it squarely in the 1990s, and he comes up out of a swamp in New England. <laughs> I'm not that's, sure exactly how that works. That's a but, big uh, swamp right there. Yeah, seriously. I mean, I, I I didn't realize that. I mean, I've lived in New York and I lived in the South. I never realized there was a swamp across 45% of the country. But, you know, I guess that's this flyover country for most of America. I don't know. It's a swamp um, channel. Yeah, and, and Scott, I, I, I think it's very um, funny that you mentioned the Marvel Cinematic Universe because supposedly that is what Universal wants to do now. Is yeah, I've to heard that. Yeah. turn their mo- yeah to turn their monster films, introduce the monsters in solo outings, and reboot Dracula and the Wolfman, and the Frankenstein monster, and the Mummy, and then bring them all together for monster mashes like House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, that sort of thing. Uh, they keep talking about this. There's nothing. I haven't seen anything really very firm about that. But I think again, it, it's very telling that this was a format and a formula that Universal kind of used in the 40s. And now is coming back into fashion with the way that Marvel is doing it with their properties, and these monsters lend themselves well to that sort of setup. I'm not sure why Universal feels the need to change the character models on these characters, though. Uh, yeah, that's and specifically the, the Frankenstein monster. I think the Universal Frankenstein monster is a classic look. Yep. The only reason that it wasn't in other incarnations, as as we discussed with Val Mayrick, is because they have the rights to that look. Right. There's no reason they had to go for the more you know, normal man look that they seem to have fallen towards. Even like when they did Van Helsing, the monster, you know, I think it should have been more the classic look. I think it would have done better. I think they would have been better served. 
Hmm. I didn't realize the monster was in that movie. I haven't ever seen that. I've, I've heard very I, much things about it. I, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of Van Helsing, but it's not. It's not a real intelligent movie. It's just a fun monster mash. That's exactly what I was just right. going to say. I enjoy it. Yeah. I liked it, but I, I can't say it's a great movie. See, and and I may be more prone because I liked both of Stephen Summers' Mummy films. Also, I I just and I, and I liked Stephen Summers' um, um, GI Joe: The Rise of Cobra. So I like his kind of popcorn movie making. So you know, I may just be more prone. Then you throw a bunch of monsters in it. And it just, you know, it just, it just, that, that's a bonus for me. So I would also go with the classic look for the mummy and the classic look for Dracula. I, I just, you yeah. know, I see no reason to vary off it. And for that matter, I'd go with the classic look for the Wolfman, too. Well, see, that's the thing is I, I'm all about this idea of bringing them back for modern audiences and everything. But at the same rate, I want them to look and feel like the classic monsters. I'm not saying they have to be stuck in that in that 40s you know family friendly mentality or whatever but at the same rate you know make them identifiable don't don't make the mistake that you know that that some you know movie houses and some franchises are doing where you're going to take these classic characters and then you know reboot them to a point where they're just unrecognizable versus their their you know the quintessential version that most people think of you know make them identifiable just you know remake them for you know for a modern audience i'm all about i'm all yeah, for that because i love those characters with the exception yeah, I, think, of- I think van helsing did that to a to a good degree i mean the the mod the, the the i mean dracula and the wolfman and that were modern incarnations of dracula and the wolfman i mean yes dracula wasn't really short because the actor playing him wasn't bella lugosi but he was clearly identifiable as dracula you, you didn't look at him and see lestat or count yorga or any other cinematic vampire he looked like dracula you know, the Wolfman may have owed more to the Howling than to uh, Lon Chaney Jr., but he was still the Wolfman. The monster, right. I think they, they tried to do something a little different with him, but he did have elements of the universal design. He had the bolts on his neck. He had the uh, electrodes. He had the, the kind of the squared off head. I think they were just trying to do something a little bit. You, know, you, you can't, so you can't rip have, off Karloff, you know? Didn't he have like the transparent brain pan or something? Yeah, you could see the you could see the 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 like the uh, uh, the electricity jumping around inside of his brain. Yeah, I, I didn't like that. Yeah, it was. I mean, that that's kind of a that's kind of like a early two thousands y kind of touch. I agree. See, see I, I think in particular the Wolfman and Frankenstein and the Mummy. Uh, all three of those, it doesn't matter who you cast in the role, you can go with the classic look on them because they're makeup yeah. heavy. Now you know you. You'd have to go out of your way to try and get an actor who looks like Lugosi if you want to go for the classic look. Mm-hmm. So Dracula, I think you have to give a little artistic license to, and, and maybe you know you got to find the right actor and not necessarily be tied to the look. Yeah. But the other See, the, other, a, the other characters, there's no reason they can't go with the classic look. The the only thing that I would, I mean, I agree with you, Paul. The only thing that the caveat I would add in that is you got to remember that there are two Universal mummies. So if you're talking about Imhotep as played by Boris Karloff, for the majority of the film, he's not what we would imagine the mummy in our head. If we think the mummy, we more see Tom Tyler and later Lon Chaney Jr. as Karras, you know, wrapped up in the bandages, mm-hmm. dragging his leg behind him with the left arm stretched out and the right arm that's, pinned to his That's mom. what I want. Right, whereas in the Stephen Summers films, we didn't get Kaharis, we got Imhotep. And Imhotep looks, I mean, he, he looks like Ardeth Bey. He looks like a very old Egyptian man right. for most of the film. So, it, you know, it's, that, that would be the only caveat. I, I agree with you completely. If you're going to have, you gotta, you got to do like the Monster Squad. If you're going to do the Universal Monsters, make them recognizable. 
as a universal monsters. There's a reason why that film is beloved, you know, and there's a reason why like the Steve Wayne Gilman is so beloved from the monster squad. It's because that is the Gilman just updated to use at the time, modern, uh, you know, creature effects to create him. Right. You know, that's that my, my, not to tangent onto the Gilman, but just wanted to say that it's absolutely amazing. My, my brother is, um, he, he's big into modeling and he likes doing besides figure modeling, doing bus. And, um, they did a at Jersey Fest a couple of years ago. I think they did a class for the Steve Wang Gilman, and it's like a it's a it's a one to one scale bust of the Gilman head. The one my brother did is freaking terrifying. It like looks like it's watching you around the room, and it <laughs> looks like it's all wet. It's like oh man, that's freaking. Can you turn that around when I'm here, please? That's just weirding me out. <laughs> <laughs> I think you need to to get a picture of that for us. Uh yeah, I'm sure Jay will put it up. Jay, if you uh, you know listeners to the vault know that my brother's on the show now and. Most of my brother's Facebook feed is his models, so. <laughs> well, he, uh, you know, he, he could put it on the bins page when this episode goes, if uh, <laughs> if he's so inclined. He does, and, and to get back to topic, he also does like doing Frankenstein's, so. The Gill Man looked, oh, just, just to go back to that, just, bef- you know, before we go off of it, uh, I think that, I think you can go with the classic look, but you need to kind of update just the quality of the makeup. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. a little, little too stiff. Uh, a little too plasticky looking. Yeah, well, I mean, it's helped by being in black and white too. It'd well, that, that hide that, that hit a lot color. of bells. Yeah, you know, when you go to color on these characters, I think you know you do have to be, you know, you got to get a top-notch makeup team to make them look just right. I I remember back in the early '80s, they were running. Um, it was a big deal, and they were running Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that 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 was kind of scary for I would think I was about 11 and. Uh, it's like, oh, 3D, scary, scary. <laughs> I remember when, when, when I was a kid, when I was first old enough to be, you know, like home alone at night if my parents went out. And if they went out to dinner, like on a Saturday night, they used to show, you know, the horror movies, you know, pretty much starting at about 11 every Saturday night. And I'd be sitting there by myself terrified until they came home. <laughs> <laughs> they had TV then? They did have TV, yes. But I remember, you know, that, that was... My my introduction to the Universal movies, Universal monsters, was in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. But my when I truly started to watch them, it was on those Saturday night horror yeah. theater shows. Yeah, that was uh, the Shock syndication package, and then the Son of Shock syndication package that Universal put together. To that that sold to all of those you know uh, local horror hosts like Bill. You were talking about Doctor Paul Bearer at one mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Uh, I, I love watching Sven Gulli out of Chicago every week on MeTV. Oh, yeah. He's still on the air, so can't beat him. Yeah, that's one of the, the shows that, that my daughter demands that we tape. Is, mm-hmm. I, that's, I'm showing my age. I'm calling it tape instead of record. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but every, every every Saturday night, I have to record Sven Gulli because she loves watching him. Not only for you know Sven Gulli's you know, goofy segments, but also she just loves monster movies. Well, my personal favorite is Peter Vincent. Yep. <laughs> and Fright Night. <laughs> For real. So, Scott, I think you had a little bit more about the uh, Frankenstein monster history that you wanted to touch on before we think about going over to our books. Well, this uh, essentially, I'm ready to jump to the books. Um, I think mine is the earliest one. So because we're all essentially covering the, the same monster just at different points in his uh, 
is in his uh, afterlife, I guess you would say. Um, <laughs> in his career. Yeah, in yes, his, his career. His, <laughs> I kind of wanted to do a, a, a brief history of the monster and kind of leading up to uh, the first book that we're covering tonight. So we're, you know, most of the books that we're covering um, are covering the Marvel Comics incarnation of the Frankenstein monster. And I just recently, uh, within the past year or so, uh, completed my collection of the the Marvel Frankenstein, uh, his original title. Now, when that started, that was in 1973. The, the title began as The Monster of Frankenstein and ran for five issues before they changed the title. And they just flip-flopped the words a little bit. They changed it to The Frankenstein Monster. In total, that series ran 18 issues. Um, and while the quality varies a bit here and there, overall, I, I found that to be a fantastic series. And just prior to our interview with Val Mayerick, uh, know, you know, knowing that interview was coming up and everything, I uh, went back and not only was checking out Val's work on the title and everything, but I realized that you know now I have all 18 issues of this series. I realized I'd never actually read them sequentially and there was one or two issues i don't think i had ever read because i didn't own them which i think was uh issues two and three i believe so you know i stacked them all up and i sat down and i've been reading through the series uh here and there and um i'm basically up to the point of the book that i'm going to cover tonight but i have just found it by sitting down and, and actually getting to read it finally you know in in the proper sequence Man, what a great book. It is so much fun. I mean, I've always liked, you know, my two favorite issues of the series were uh, number 12, which is Merrick's first issue on this title, um, although it's not his first work on the monster. Uh, and that's the one that brought the monster into modern day. But the series started with number one with uh, Mike Plug as the artist. And it's funny because I was never really the, the biggest Plug fan in the world, but going back and, and reading these first few issues of this series, oh my God, is that guy just a hell of an artist. I mean, some beautiful, beautiful artwork. Um, let me see, I'm going to pull one up here just to see who the, um, who the colorist was, because that was the other thing that really struck me on these is that uh, the coloring is phenomenal at a time when Marvel didn't always have the greatest colorists, you know, but there's an issue. It's actually issue two that picks up where the monster has actually been thrown overboard off of a ship. And let's see, Dave Hunt, it says here is the, uh, is the colorist and just gorgeous. I mean, just really compliments uh, the artwork. Um, but you know, the early issues of this, um, well, you know, of course, the first issue is pretty much a straight-up adaptation of the original Mary Shelley novel um, and follows that story pretty closely. And then from there, it just kind of it jumps ahead in time. Um, and it's weird because the it kind of plays fast and loose with the timeline. It kind of makes it a little bit vague as to how much time has passed since the original one because there's a really strange... Uh, quote here at the beginning of the second issue, and I'm just going to read it, and you guys see if this makes any sense to you at all. It says, Four decades have passed since the brute's blasphemous creation by a young scientist named Victor Frankenstein. And now, having been encased in ice for nearly a century, once more the monster walks. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. What? First you said four decades, and now you're saying nearly a century, and I'm like, 
okay. So, yeah, it really doesn't make any sense at all. And it doesn't really give you a solid sense of how much time has passed. I tend to go with the century thing. So, you know, a good long time has passed since the monster's actual creation. So for the first, um, basically about the first dozen issues of the book, it is... Uh, well, in the, the very first couple of issues is the monster's um, hunt for Frankenstein himself. He basically wants revenge on Frankenstein for creating him in the first place. And then after the time jump, it becomes about him. He spends a lot of time not really knowing what his purpose in life is. And he decides that once he learns that there is a last surviving Frankenstein descendant, then his mission becomes to seek out this descendant of Frankenstein and kill him, essentially bringing an end to the Frankenstein uh, bloodline. So it kind of jumps around a bit, but story-wise and, and most definitely art-wise, the first, um, I believe it's the first six issues. Let's see, I'm whipping through here real quick. Yeah, the first six issues are just solid, really good stuff. And then with issue seven, um, Plug left the book, and the art chores turn over to um, John Buscema and John Verporten. And it starts really strong. And I like Buscema's work on the monster in the first story that they do. And then from there, it gets a little, I got to be honest, I think it gets a little lazy. And I don't know if this is because maybe Buscema was working on other projects at the same time or something. But it just doesn't have the, the time and care and attention taken with it with the other Buscema issues as it does with the first one. So the art takes a serious step down. Although during that time, uh, the monster does come up against Dracula. And what's really cool about that is that Dracula has the classic look that he had at the time when he had his own book, um, Tomb of Dracula. But this story is actually taking place in Frankenstein's timeline, not, or, you know, the monster's timeline and not Dracula's timeline. So it's actually like a flashback tale of Dracula, which is pretty cool. And then from there, it kind of it kind of drifts around a little bit. And there is a um, there's one issue that's done. I'm trying to remember who the artist is here. This one is by it's done by uh, Bob Brown. And while I like Bob Brown a lot on, like, say, Superboy, the, yeah, the art on this one is really not good. It's really not a very good story, either art-wise or story-wise. And then uh, the next issue is the one that brings uh, the monster into modern day. And, of course, that's the first Merrick issue. Well, concurrently with this, starting at about issue four of this series the monster started appearing in a black and white Marvel title called Monsters Unleashed. And this was at a time when Marvel was putting out black and white magazines that were intended for a much more mature audience, arguably the same audience that would be doing, you know, that would be looking at, say, like uh, heavy metal or something like that. So it was intended for more mature audiences. So it tended to be a little more gritty um, sometimes the language was a little bit, you know, a little bit more adult, and sometimes they even had nudity and such. Um, I, I didn't see that. What's that? So that's what I was always looking for. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't see any of that in the issues uh, that I've read so far. Um, but the monster um, appeared in uh, starting with uh, issue two of Monsters Unleashed. And I'm not sure if he appeared in every issue between two and the one that I'm going to cover tonight. But the one that I wanted to cover 
is uh, is actually Monsters Unleashed number six. And so this was part of a of an ongoing kind of a serial that was going on with the monster in this title. And the overall title of the serial started out as Frankenstein 1973 was simply the title. By this time, it had changed, and now it's Frankenstein 1974. So that's the overall name of the serial. And then the the name of this individual chapter, um, this is actually the second part of a two-part story, although the whole thing is an overarching serial. This one's called Part Two, Once a Monster. And so this story starts out, and what's interesting about this is that the story is by Doug Mensch, who would eventually take over uh, the color magazine, the Frankenstein Monster magazine proper, with art by Val Merrick, who, again, Val Merrick would become the regular artist on Frankenstein Monster, the, the color comic. So both of these guys, this is where they're starting on this title, and this is their introduction to the monster, and eventually they would take over the color book. So... They're kind of coming in in the middle of this story. And what's neat is if you read the preceding chapter, you can really tell that they're just kind of picking up the cliffhanger ending from the last one and kind of interpreting it like their way. Like, where the hell was this going? Well, okay, let's just take it this direction. So it has a fun feel to it. It reminds me a lot of, um, do you remember that book back in, I think it was in the 80s, it was called DC Challenge, where a different creative team would work on every issue and they would leave it like a cliffhanger ending for the next team to just come in and, and see if they could pick up and follow and do their own thing. You, you guys remember that title? I've heard of it. I don't remember ever actually reading it, though. Yeah, yeah it's same. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot yeah. like that. So it has a it has a very disjointed feel. But at the same rate, I just thought it was really cool that, Mun, you know, Mensch really, you know, kind of picked this up midstream and just ran his own direction. So at the end of the last issue, this guy... Um, Derek McDowell was outright murdered by this mad scientist that was uh, in the story. He was murdered and his body was dumped in the drink off the pier. Well, as this issue starts, Derek uh, McDowell's corpse surfaces and he actually climbs out of the water up onto the pier and mistaking the bum that's on the pier for this Dr. Wallach that murdered him, he murders the bum. And as soon as the bum is dead, he realizes, oh, wait, you weren't Dr. Wallach. So then he, he kind of feels bad that he killed this guy. Well, looking at uh, McDowell, he's all messed up. I mean, he, he reminds me a lot of um, uh, of how Ted Danson looked in Creepshow the movie. You know, when he comes back, you know, after being drowned and everything, he, his skin's all weird and puckered and waterlogged and everything. One of his eyes is kind of hanging loosely and everything. He's just, he's messed. You know, he's a corpse. He's been at the bottom of the river for like three days or something. So he's all messed up. You mean but there's not like any... Ted Danson looks now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Kind of like oh, the, last, the last couple of years of Cheers. Yeah, we've all we've all said that. Yeah. <laughs> right. But there's, there's no explanation given into how this guy came back. He just does. He just comes back from being murdered and you're kind of left like, whoa, this is taking a weird turn. So we cut to Frankenstein's monster and he's just sitting in an alley. And when you first see him, you look, it looks like he's sitting there maybe feeling sorry for himself or something. Well, what it turns out was that he is, while it is the body of the monster, this is where it gets a little strange. His mind is actually the mind of a common mouse. And so there's a flashback where it tells 
how this happened. So this wallet guy, he was a nutcase and he invented this machine that basically worked like the mind transfer machine in Turnabout Intruder in, uh, in the last episode of Star Trek, where it just swaps brains with people. Except in this case, it literally like beams your brain from body to body. Well, Dr. Wallach had somehow become, his mind had become trapped in the body of the Frankenstein monster, and he had kidnapped this trapeze artist. And the idea was that he admired the athletic body of this trapeze artist. And so he was going to once again swap his brain from the monster into this, you know, you know, healthy, muscular, athletic trapeze artist body and then have himself a new body. And as this transfer is taking place, uh, he has this cage that has a, a mouse in it that was, you know, for him to experiment on or whatever. And the mouse gets free runs up the leg of the trapeze artist and sits on his head right as the machine fires. So when it fires, it doesn't take the trapeze artist's brain, it takes the mouse's brain, and they swap places with you know the mouse and, and Dr. Wallach's brain, in, again, in the body of the monster. So now the monster has the, the mind of a mouse. Squeak, squeak, I tell you. So it's really, I mean, it's very silly, but what's cool about it is that on a purely um, on a purely like instinctive animal level, that's how the monster is now operating. So if you forgive the kind of stupid way that they got here, you know, with the mouse mind and all that, and just go with the idea that now the monster is really reduced to being an animal and operating purely on instinct, it actually makes it very interesting because one of the things that is a little bit strange about uh, the the color book up to this point and one of the few drawbacks I feel to that you know one of the few shortcomings I feel of that series is while the art's beautiful the stories are very very good one thing that they do with the monster that's very kind of off-putting to me is that the monster is eloquent he speaks and he's very intelligent so he's not I mean he's a monster in visage only he's not a monster as far as um, you know, like in the, in, like say in the old Karloff movies where he's just like a shambling, essentially a zombie. In these, he's not. He's, he realizes that he's brought back from the dead, that he's basically a patchwork man, but he reasons, he thinks, and he's intelligent. And that's all fine and well, but the problem is, is that I feel like a part of the story is missing because they never explain, well, whose brain is in the monster to begin with? If he's oh, all, that's, I can tell you that that's Abby yeah. Normal. Well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's explained in just about every Frankenstein movie I've ever seen. You know, the, the monster's um, demeanor is usually explained by the brain that's in him. But in this one case, in this Marvel series, they never address that. He's just he is what he is. And they never bother to address. Wait a minute. How is he so eloquent if he was pieced together from corpses? Whose brain is in there? They, they never address that at all. And this, to me, was kind of an attempt to kind of bring him back to more kind of like his movie roots of just being kind of a mindless monster. And so in that aspect, it really works because now he can't talk. And now he is just basically just uh, running on instinct. So I kind of liked it, even though it was really silly with the whole mouse thing and everything. Anyway, 
getting back to the story, McDowell, uh, the corpse of McDowell, makes his way back to Dr. Wallach's lab. And when he gets there, he finds the body of the um, acrobat laying on the floor. And he's like, I wonder who the hell this guy is. And then he's like, eh, it doesn't really matter. So he puts he puts the matter, the mind transfer machine, he puts one helmet on himself and one helmet on the trapeze guy. And so he essentially does what Wallach intended to do. He swaps brains with the athlete guy. So now he's got this nice new, um, you know, athletic body. And he decides, okay, I'm going after Wallach. He still, th he doesn't realize that Wallach actually isn't around anymore. So he's intent on going and killing Wallach. He believes that Wallach is still in the body of the monster. So the monster in the meantime is literally just like walking down city streets and people are freaking out and going, oh my God, I'm a monster. And they're running away from him and the police show up. And this is the best sequence in the whole story because the art is just beautiful. So the cops pull up, they see the monster. And of course, what do they do? Same thing they do in every monster movie. Let's piss it off. Let's shoot at it. So they start shooting at it and it does piss him off. And the, my favorite page in the whole book is where the monster just walks over to the cop car, casually picks up the front of it, and just heaves it. And I love this. It's just, you know, it's just classic monster stuff, but it's so beautifully rendered, especially in black and white. I really like this panel. So he flings the cop car. Cop car ca uh, catches on fire. Then cops, I don't know, they're dead or knocked out, one of the two. Wall, uh, McDowell, now I don't know how the hell he found the monster so fast, but he's up on top of a rooftop. He's got a sniper rifle and a tranquilizer dart. So he shoots the monster and takes it down. So the monster collapses. He drags the monster back into a van, takes him back to the lab. And his intention is to, um, basically he's going to punish uh, Dr. Wallach at this point, because again, he still thinks that Wallach's brain is in the monster. So he finds the creature's real brain which is, at this point, it's just in a jar. Wallach, for some reason, had, had taken it and, and put it in this, in this jar. And so he hooks up the brain in the jar to one side of the mind transfer machine. He hooks the other side up to the monster. And his intention is he's going to put the monster's own brain back in the monster, and then Wallach's brain will transport into this little, this little glass you know, holder, and he'll be able to like eternally torment Dr. Wallach. And after the transfer is done, the monster's brain is back, you know, in the monster. And <laughs> McDowell's looking at this container going, well, this can't be right. This thing's no larger than a pea. So essentially, the, the mouse's brain has now transported into the jar, which raises the question of if, if it was literally really transporting the actual physical brain, how the hell does that work? You know, you've got this tiny little pea brain rattling around inside like a normal size man's head. It's it's at that point, it's pretty damn silly. So while he's ranting and raving about, you know, he you know, his revenge is spoiled and all this. The monster actually walks up behind him, grabs a hold of the guy, flings him into a wall and smashes his brains out. And there's a great panel of, I mean, literally the guy's head just being dashed to pieces against the wall. It's pretty gruesome. And the monster, uh, his attention is grabbed by this, this moaning sound. And he turns around and he looks and the corpse of McDowell is laying on a table but of course it has now the mind of the trapeze artist guy in it and that guy 
recognize him, recognizes him and they're having a conversation. And then it actually like our perspective as a viewer, as a reader kind of pulls back and we see this mysterious figure sitting in a chair. We don't see his face or anything. All we're seeing is like a hand and, and this person sitting in a chair, uh, very much like Blofeld style. And he's, you know, he's basically, uh, you know, doing the, the villainous monologue and he's saying, you know, how well the two forces in conjunction with one another, science and sorcery, he says, um, the electronic surveillance of Wallach's laboratory, which even he was unaware of, and the voodoo resurrection of Derek McDowell's drowned corpse. So he, there we're finally given an explanation for how McDowell came back. He says, the poor fool never even wondered how he returned to life after lying at the bottom of the East River for three days, never realized that his resurrection was not designed to grant him petty vengeance, but to return the monster's brain to its body for my purposes. And that's basically the end. And it just says, you know, tune in next week for or when, or next month or whatever for the next chapter of this story. I haven't read beyond this point, so I really don't know who the hell this is that's talking, but I'm thinking, okay, so he brought back McDowell and everything, and this person's claiming that they did it to enable the monster to regain having his own brain. It's like, how in the hell could he possibly have planned for that to happen? How could he know that McDowell would switch the brains back? So there's a lot of leaps in logic in this. There's a lot of silliness in the story. But despite all that, <laughs> I talked the hell out of this. I thought it was a lot of fun. The art is just beautiful. I mean, it's all Merrick um, in black and white. And I think the black and white just really lends into this. I, I love the look of it. What do you guys think? I, uh, you know, I love Merrick's art. And, but I find it interesting. Usually for a horror story in black and white, you look, I think you generally look for a lot of deep, dark blacks in there to create mm -hmm. that horror feel. But if you look over the story, with the exception of the first page, it's pretty brightly drawn. Right. There's not a lot of dark shadows in this book. Right. And that's kind of surprising for this kind of story because it still manages to create the atmosphere that you want a horror book to create. So it seems to have gone against the, you know, the natural first thought and yet still managed to come up with uh, the feeling that you'd want to evoke in this book. I mean, right. Merrick's art is gorgeous. Uh, the only, you know, the only time I've seen Mayrick's art not look gorgeous is when somebody else tries to ink it and over, over inks it. Right. Uh, otherwise, I mean, the guy is incredible and, and people, I, I was going to, when we interviewed him, I was going to call him an, uh, like an under, you know, like an unknown artist. I, I think the word is more under, underappreciated. I think people just don't realize how good he was or is. What's I would say underappreciated, and I don't know about unknown, but I would say, and you know, with apologies, Dan, I don't mean this to sound insulting or what, and I and I wonder how he himself would agree or disagree with this, but I think in some ways forgotten. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and, and wrongly so, though. Yeah, that's what I mean. It, it's not even so much unknown or or underappreciated as just kind of forgotten, which is a damn shame because you know the guy's phenomenal, and I I can only imagine that's because relatively speaking when you you know when you think of other artists that were his contemporaries relatively speaking he had a very small body of work so guys like that that came along in this era of say mid 70s to you know the mid 90s that you know that that basically like a 20 year period there's a i mean comics history especially marvel comics history is rife with these guys that you know could have been 
superstars, but just somehow they came out, they, they made a, a minor splash, they did what they did, and then they just seemed to fall off the face of the earth. And there's been a bunch of them. I mean, a now, whole bunch of them. His, his body of work, and I haven't actually put it side by side to compare it size-wise, but I would think probably similar in size to somebody like, say, Jim Steranko. Yeah. And Jim Steranko yeah. is revered for his body of work. Now, I, I'll sure. openly admit that, that Steranko was more revolutionary than, than Mayrick was. But as far as you you want to just talk quality of artwork, I don't think he takes a backseat to pretty much, you know, almost anybody. Yeah, I think what, what happens is, and, and uh, you know, going on what you were saying, Scott, about Forgotten, and uh, to compare with the, the Steranko comparison, it's what they worked on, I think. You know, a, a lot of modern-day readers don't remember this era of Marvel where there were not only the, the color monster uh, comics, but then the black-and-white magazines. That, you know, in, in the mid-'70s, there was this, after the restrict the loosening of the restrictions of the comics code, there was a lot of monster and horror output that it just it just doesn't it doesn't enter in. It doesn't factor in nowadays. You know, uh, when, when you were, Scott, when you were setting this up and you said that the monster found his motivation to track down the last remaining member of the Frankenstein bloodline. If this was nowadays, it's like the monster found his motivation and joined the Avengers. Right. You know, that'd be about right, the yeah. only thing Marvel knows what to do with a lot of their characters. So I think, yeah, I mean, Mayrick, uh, you know, just, you know, it, it seems like a lot of times people forget about him just because he didn't do Avengers. He didn't do, he didn't have a run on Spider-Man or Fantastic Four. His stuff was from the, the genre books, which just for a lot of readers nowadays, it's like, eh, I don't read that stuff, you know? So they, they right. overlook it and, and the, the creators who worked in it. And they're, they're doing themselves a disservice because his work is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Oh, this look, this this this, this uh, story, this, this looks absolutely fantastic. It's not a long, it's only about, I think, what, 12 pages or so. Yeah. But every every page is moody. The the layouts are, uh, they're very straightforward layouts, but, you know, there's everything just has fantastic detailing in it. The uh, I, I figured you would like that panel on page eleven, Scott, because it kind of reminds me of the cover of Action Comics number one a little bit. Yeah, where he's flipping ah. the car. Yeah, I love flipping it. the car. Yeah, so you got all like 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 Mike Bailey says, it all comes back to Superman. But but just <laughs> even even that, just the you know the, the aftermath of that, the the impact of the car on its hood, and then the smoke and flames as the monster shambles away. It all just looks very very moody. And even as it is, as as you said, Paul, kind of bathed in sunlight for most of the story. It's uh, almost like um, uh, like like Jack Davis would do over in some of the EC books, where he would have scenes of grotesquerie taking place in a scene of normalcy. So you've right. got a normal suburban street, but now you've got this shambling corpse walking down the street, you know. And so it's the the juxtaposition of those two dissimilar uh, uh, imageries. You you can almost hear the the orchest- orchestral theme as this this scene is playing out, and and see it as almost a silent movie. Yeah, it, it's 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 so moody that you, you can almost you know you can feel it. It's just there. Right? Oh, it's beautiful. That said, I'm giving the artwork a D. <laughs> <laughs> Dynamic. A tough crowd. Tough crowd. Gee. <laughs> what what do you give this, Paul? Uh, well, I, you know, before we get into the ratings, I don't think Bill or Gene have really said what they thought of it. So why don't we oh, hold off on that? Guys. Those well, cops I... are still in that vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> Poor bastards. Uh, the art, the art on this is definitely beautiful. You know, I, I especially like in the flashbacks. So normally you get the flashback panels and they just have rounded corners. These are like fluid. 
Yeah, it, it's not just rounded corners. It's got. It looks like it's flowing through. I guess it's the mouse's brain that's remembering right. all this. Yeah. But the, the one thing that gets me though is Doctor Wallach has his brain transferred into the mouse. Now we know that it's a physical transfer of the brain. How did the mouse's skull not explode? Squish with the brain. Oh, <laughs> I mean, he gets squished by the monster pretty damn quick. But still, you would think. Human brain inside mouse skull, it go boom. You'd think, but you'd be wrong. Yeah. That or that gene, or actually what would have made it very Marvel is if the mouse now looked like the leader. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like the smart, it it would be like the brain, you know? It's like the same thing we do every night, Pinky. (laughs) Try to take over the world. (laughs) Now, the, the shot on page six in the center panel, I know I've seen that in other places. That's... I couldn't tell you where. Maybe, maybe in a Frank in a Frankenstein ad in a Marvel comic, where where he's looking down at the mouse yes. or the rat. Yeah, not not so much the mouse as the monster. Yeah, I, I, I I'm that. sure I've seen that in other places. I, I really like that because, as I think I said to Val himself in, in our interview episode, I mean, I like his monster best in the comics because he captured that element of my favorite version of the uh, you know my favorite f- film version of Frankenstein. Uh, Frankenstein's monster, which is um, Curse of Frankenstein, because the reason I like that one is the monster is a monster in visage only, and you feel at least when I watch that movie, I feel damn sorry for him because he's really mm-hmm. a pitiful and pitiable creature, and mm-hmm. he doesn't understand where he is or how he is or anything. He's just, I mean, he he's just one step above like a zombie from like the walking dead he's he's literally a resurrected corpse and really has like the brain of uh of like a uh, like a retarded person or or a, or a very small child and he's just very uh innocent and as i say just pitiable and that's i think why i liked this story right here for all of its stupid elements you know, they at least they get him back to what I look at is like, uh, to me, like my quintessential version of the monster, which is just, and you know, he's just uh, kind of running on instinct. And that picture you're talking about, I think all of that is conveyed in his face. He's just sad, you know. He's he just break and just looking at that picture just breaks my heart. He's just like, ah, you know, he doesn't understand who he is, where he is, or what's happening to him. It's like Dr. Bill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a monster. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's the uh, it's the refrain I make not infrequently, Scott. It's and it applies most of, of all the classic monsters. It applies the most to the Frankenstein's monster. Who are the real monsters here? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and 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 I and I exactly. usually see that to be to be uh, snarky, but in this case, I think it's well met. It's like the monster didn't ask for any of this, right? He simply right. he's he really is kind of the victim here of you know the, the 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 schemes and games of other people who are much smarter than him and probably should know better but are but don't because they're insane. Right. <laughs> well, did anybody realize that now that poor little mouse's brain, that poor little mouse is in that jar? Yeah, just <laughs> the little mouse brain in a jar. Yeah, because he had a body, then he's in this huge body. Now he's in a jar. I feel sorry for the that mouse. You know, I, th- I think if the mouse uh, brain went into that big body, he'd make him like a beeline to the cheese shop. 
<laughs> Jeez, good. <laughs> Go right after John Cleese. <laughs> no fondue, fire. Don't have any cheddar. It's the most popular Don't get much cheese in the for world. It. Get much call for cheddar. <laughs> it's a bit runny, sir. All right, so uh, Bill, what'd you think? Uh, this is this is pretty cool. I, I've never read a lot of the black and white stuff. Um, I guess ba- back to the bins has given me a lot of exposure to black and white comics. Oh dear! Oh dear! <laughs> With apes and also uh, uh, what was it? Was it Man Thing? No, Swamp. Yeah, it was Man Thing. Who did the art on that, Paul? On which Man Thing? Uh, the one that you did. You you. I think you covered it. It was the black and white. Oh, the uh, the actual introduction of him. Yeah, that was. Uh, Plug, that's a good it? question. Like Plug, that- wasn't it? It may have been Plug, but I'm thinking no. Let me. You you keep talking. I'll look. Okay. It. Yeah. No. This is. I mean, there's. It's there's so much here with how well the guy that comes out of what is it Wallach that comes out of the swamp. Not 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 the swamp. This the sewer. No, 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 no. That's no. Wallace's the, the guy that put him in in the East River, which you could call a sewer, I guess. <laughs> hey, easy, easy. <laughs> it was great. Gray Morrow drew that initial uh, introduction. Mm. But uh, you know how he just Gray Morrow, really? Oh wow! Yep. According to he... Wikipedia, and that's never wrong. <laughs> I guess the shock of coming out of out of the river and he just kills the first guy. It's like there's. I mean, this. I mean, you know, this 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 is a horror book, and you know, is this innocent bystander killed and an innocent mouse gets killed well i guess i guess once the other guy's brain was in the mouse he wasn't an innocent mouse so i guess he deserved to die but uh but yeah (laughs) i'm sorry he deserved to die (laughs) once he put in a jaw he had nowhere else to go i got nowhere else to go i got nowhere else to go I got nothing else. <laughs> I got nowhere else to go. I got no body to go back to. Hey, Luke, there was something I wanted to ask you about real quick. Do you remember um, when Marvel, they they teamed up with some, I want to say Japanese, I could be wrong, but they teamed up with some uh, foreign film company and they produced an animated Tomb of Dracula movie. Did yes. you ever hear about this? Well, yes, I, just I, learned... I, I have the bootleg of that, yeah. Yeah, I do too. Ooh. I just learned today that they also produced an, uh, uh, basically a, a Frankenstein's monster uh, animated movie as well, based on these comics, just like the Tomb of Dracula one. I never I, knew that before, and I'm wondering if that bootleg is out there to be seen, because I'd see love that, to that, see that. Yeah, see, that I, I, I have the Tomb of Dracula one, and that one you can find relatively easily at your uh, your favorite bootleg booth at your you know comic convention of choice. I right. have heard the Monster of Frankenstein one, but to be honest with you, Scott, I've never seen it. I've never even seen like screen caps from it or anything. I, it's one of those ones that I've heard talked about, but everyone says, you know, I don't think anyone, if they do have it, it's not widely available because I've never seen it. I'm going to have to That is it. one definitely that, you know, where we're, you know, the kind of the big cons that I go to are done for the year, but that's that is one to keep an eye out for. In you know, in general, because that's one that if you get a copy of it now, you're the king of trade bait. Right. <laughs> I'll trade you five copies of this, eh? but uh, 
No, and, and, and that would be really neat to see because that, that Tomb of Dracula film is very odd because it's almost as if they did an adaption of the Tomb of Dracula on uh, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. Right. That's what the Toei animation looks kind of like. So I think it would be great to see the uh, uh, the Monster Frankenstein stories in that same style. We, we did actually get the Monster Frankenstein sort of on uh, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, so that, that was appropriate. That's true. Yeah, that's true. The, the one with Castle Dracula, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, the last two pages that I want to note is when he hits him with the tranquilizer. I like that series of shots there where the monster collapses. And yeah. It's just oh, so yeah. well, well drawn. And then on the, the last two panels of page 14, when he's looking down in the jar, this just the look on his face of disbelief and then of such anger in the next one and meanwhile the monster's like let me take this off my head and i'm gonna kill you <laughs> yeah those those last two panels uh dr bill they they to me if you if you took this page and just gave it to me out of context from those two panels i would have said this would be from a warren magazine not a marvel magazine yeah just the way they look kind of has that warren creepy look to it you know mm-hmm I'm not. I'm not sure if it's just the the shading on the monster, or you know, like you said, that the guy not noticing the thing behind him for the ironic sort of ending, whatever it is. But yeah, that's yeah. That I really like that as well because it's that that classic thing in horror where you know the audience has a deeper depth of knowledge than the character. Yeah, I go run, run. He's right behind you. Nope, <laughs> you don't see him. He's gonna get you, like Jason popping up behind him. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean that's this is beautiful. I mean, I this if if you want to give a if you want to give a letter grade, it's it's an A, and yeah. the story is very. I mean, I'd like to read more of this. Of course, I say that about everything. <laughs> I'd like to read more. <laughs> so I would give the story an A too. Sweet. Okay, well we we're up to ratings now. Yeah, apparently. Okay, yeah. so Scott, <laughs> just to answer your question, I'm giving the art an A. <laughs> if that's a shock to you and i'm giving the story i'd give the story a b it's not quite as good as the art but it's it's enjoyable it kind of sets the dark tone uh yeah i'd say a b overall and then the cover is is the cover actually cover is covers boris vallejo by, actually yeah covers yes. by I, boris yeah let me take another look at that uh i'm actually not thrilled with the cover yeah so i'd say the cover is a, a b minus it's not that it's bad just doesn't doesn't grab me the way it could. So overall, I'll uh, excuse me. <laughs> I'll I'll say a B plus for the overall. I well, like I, everything doing, doing the oh, cover. Yeah, the covers. Yeah, the cover doesn't do much for me. I'd say a C. So I guess my overall would. I guess that would bring it down to like an A minus B plus. Um, looking at the the cover, I, I like the cover because it reminds me a bit of the uh, the album cover to the Iron Maiden album Killers. <laughs> yeah. So that, I, I may be in my mind pumping it up a bit more. I, I generally like Boris Vallejo's work, even though I'm more of a Frank Frazetta kind of guy. That's definitely a, a B cover. If, if I see that as I'm flipping through a stack of magazines, I'm going to stop and look at it. Also, I'm going to tie this into the cover because it doesn't really, it's on the, the table of contents page. If you look in the table of contents, we have a picture of the Toho Monster Gigan. And so that automatically makes it a, a good thing in my book when Geigen <laughs> makes a little cameo there. Um, as for the uh, the art, the the Valmeric art in the, the the story itself, it's an A. I mean, there's I mean, it's it's just so moody and evocative. I think uh, it's it pretty much speaks for itself. 
And as for the story, I, I like that Mench takes what Scott, what you right, rightly called, a very silly story with some of the details here, but he, he plays fair with it. He's yeah. not laughing at it. Mench is not smirking at it. He's treating it for what it is. It's it's a comic magazine story, and so okay, we gotta we gotta take some some uh, you know a grain of salt with this. And and I think Mench does a really good job with it. I'd definitely give the story, you know, a, a, probably a, a B minus overall. I'd say just this segment of it definitely a, a solid B plus, and a, I definitely would come back next uh, the next issue to see the next installment. Um, I really, I like the cover except, I, I, basically I like everything about the cover except the actual head and face of the monster. He actually looks like this hippie kid that used to work at the gas station down the street. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm not crazy yeah, about that. old property, man. <laughs> Strangely, <laughs> this version of the monster reminds me more of, um, there was one that DC had that I I want to say it was Mike Kaluta, I think, that worked on him. That was more, I mean, he just looked more like this. He had, like, long, greasy hippie hair, and he had, like, kind of the bearskin, uh, you know, vest and all that. You guys know what I'm talking about? I think it appeared in Phantom Stranger, I think. Is that I, Frankenstein, or? Something like that. Yeah, I can't I can't remember exactly hmm. what it was called. But that's Is what that it the kind of... Apple version, Dr. Bill? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, but you want to know where the plug goes, huh? Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I like the cover, but I, you know, I'm I'm not super enamored of it either. I'd probably give it a, I don't know, like a B minus, I guess, just because I'm not crazy about the the face. Everything else is pretty good. I just don't like the monster's face. Um, interior art, straight up A. Um, I love this. Possibly even an A plus. I really like it. I agree with uh, with Paul though that uh, strangely it does, it's it's very well lit. You know, so if this was actually like a, a film, then I would complain that it's like lit too well. You know what I mean? It should be like moodier and darker, more more like film noir. But that that's kind of a minor criticism. But I do agree that it, it is very well lit. Just just to, to go on that point a little bit, though, even in the book, I think it's counterintuitive for it to be as well lit as it is and to be as moody as it is. I think it was a strange choice by Mayrick in how he drew the book. But I think it's it really really works and it is a vibe of the mood he's trying to set despite the fact that it's well lit. So what I would think is if that same reasoning held true, if it was well lit like that in the movie and still created that same that same you know moody atmosphere, then it's a success and and it, it's an even, even greater success because it's not falling on the stereotypical tropes. It's going on a different kind of thought process and yet still evocative of the feelings they want it to be. So I, I think, you know, maybe maybe that should bump it from A to A plus because he, he, he took a, a bold risk there and, and it, you know, it paid off very well. Right. The thing that I was most prepared to be harsh with, of course, was the story. And initially, um, I had it in my mind to give it a straight up D on the story just because it is very, very wacky. But, you know, it occurs to me that what's really happening here, and I, I don't want to be overly harsh to the prior writer. And I'm, I'm struggling to remember who the prior writer was on this. I really don't remember off the top of my head. But again, I don't want to seem harsh to that prior writer, whoever it was. But essentially, in a lot of ways, Mench is kind of polishing a turd here because he was left with a pretty far out, wacky and downright damn silly cliffhanger. 
with the monster being mind swapped with a friggin' mouse and all this other crazy shit that's happening. So none of my actual beefs with the story actually can be laid at the hands of Doug Mensch. He's actually just picking up and running with what he was left with. And actually, when you look at it, doing a pretty good damn job with with what he was left with, you know, the the mind of a of a mouse in the monster's body. So given that, I actually I have to reevaluate. And and now I think I'd actually bump it up to something like a probably a, a B, B minus, something like that, because he he did a pretty good job with it. Um, really, the the one still kind of lasting complaint I have is there at the very end of the story where, um, oh, what's his face? McDowell is looking at the literal brain of a mouse in that jar. Now, I had the impression in the prior issue when Wallach was doing the mind transfer thing that it was very much like in that episode of Star Trek where Kirk and that woman swapped brains. Where I mean, they didn't swap physical brains. It's just like they're, it's like their personalities flip-flopped. And that's what I got the impression of the last issue when when Wallach and the monster traded brains was that it, it didn't happen on a physical level. It just happened on a whatever you want to call it, spiritual level or whatever. You know what I mean? They, they essentially they swapped, you know, minds in in, you know, in a non literal sense. Yeah, but here man. we're seeing that they're actually <laughs> physically swapping brains between these different bodies and that's fine and dandy, except when you get to the point that it's, you know, the, the pea-sized mouse brain. Come on, that's that's really ridiculous. But, you know, if, if that's the biggest nitpick I have, then it's not that bad. I, I still did really dig the story, and he, he does some very interesting things here. So uh, I don't know what that averages out to. I guess uh, A-, minus, B+, plus, something like that. I, I, I dug it. I really enjoyed it a lot, and uh, I'm curious to see where it goes from here. I I would have really liked to have seen the monster say narf. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're ready to okay. segue into the next book, uh, did everybody give their grades? Not yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> Gene's been laying in wait. Well, because I'm probably going to be the most negative on this. Not the interior art. The interior art, straight up A, is very well done, like you guys said, with the, the lighting effects and everything, but just the moodiness of it, the panel layouts, very, very well done. The cover, like Scott, I'm not enamored with the monster's face. It but it also is it's a very posed shot you know it looks too static if there was a little more motion implied maybe it would be better but i'm i'm probably going to have to give that a b now the story uh, taking everything into account i still have to just judge it on this one story and where it works it works where it doesn't it's way too goofy for me uh the mouse brain being one of the things, the completely improbable, oh, I intended for all this to happen by bringing him back from the, the dead out of the river. It's, I gotta give it a C. It's just, it just doesn't, doesn't work all together. It, if it was only bits of it, then it would be higher, but it's just a little, a little too off the rails in some, some cases. So I, that would average out to a B for me. 
Well, for as much as you said you were going to be harsh on it, I don't think you were overly harsh. No, I, no, I, but I'm I'm the fair. lowest grade out of everybody, so. Uh, I mean, it's, it's no fair. Jaws adaption. <laughs> there you go. Here's right. a strange bit of uh, coincidence for you, Paul. So What's this that? book was le- released concurrently with Giant Size Creatures featuring Werewolf by Night, number one, the <laughs> book you covered last time. And giant size uh, Spider-Man, where he teamed up with Dracula too. Got a little synergy going. <laughs> so uh, I, I thought about giant on... size uh, Spider-Man for uh, for the, for the Vampire Week, but I I don't think I'm going to go that route. Well, you know the thing with that book though is that you know you you talk about your bait and switch. That's that's one of the worst ones because I can remember finally tracking that down uh, when I was. Oh, I was probably in my 20s, you know, really starting to, to beef up my, my Spider-Man collection. And I finally tracked that one out. That one was a hard one for me to find. And I finally got it. And spoiler alert, they don't actually ever meet in the story. And I think that was such a ripoff. You know what I mean? Because it's so touted on the cover of that book. And they're both in the same story, but they never actually meet. And I thought that was that was bullshit. But... <laughs> Well, hey, before Scott, we go in, what's that? We know where we can get a copy of Giant Size Chillers for six bucks, even though it's a hundred dollar book, right? <laughs> a little you know, the next, the next time I'm out that way, I might, I might actually, I might actually pony up for that because I was kind of regretting that I didn't go ahead and just buy it while I was there. That oh is my god, you think we're going to be able to find it again? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before we go on to the next book here, I thought that Paul would get a real kick out of this. So from the pages of the Frankenstein monster number uh, number 12, I believe this is. Let me see here. This is number. Yes, this is number 12. This is from the letters page. Here is an actual letter published in there. At this time, there was an ongoing debate in the letter pages of the color book, the color Frankenstein monster book about whether or not to move the character out of the time period he was operating in in this book and sync it up with the black and white book, which, as I say, right out of the gate, had the monster in the 1970s. So this was a letter that was addressing that very point. So the letter writer says, Dear Marvel, cast my vote as definitely in favor of keeping the monster in the 1880s time period. If for no other reason that to prevent a Spider-Man slash monster team-up. Black. (laughs) The closest I want to come to that is in a bad nightmare. Merry Christmas. Ralph Macchio, Crestfield, (laughs) New Jersey. Oh, oh, wow. And the answer, the reply they gave him is, uh, all of which does raise another important question, Ralph, nightmare or not. Would anyone out there care to see Frankie involved in, uh, by the way, I hate when they call him Frankie, involved in an adventure with any of the Marvel superheroes or the spinoffs from those characters. We tend to agree that a Spidey slash monster issue of Marvel team-up would be a tad ridiculous, we think, but a monster versus Morbius battle or a monster versus man-wolf confrontation or an even stranger possibility, the Frankenstein monster and the beast together. Uh, And we could ask about, say, Ghost Rider or Son of Satan while we're at it. We're not considering any of these crossovers right now, so don't panic. But do let us know whether or not you'd approve here. And uh, I think that's a rather prophetic uh, <laughs> bit of speculation there, given what okay, we're about yeah, to well, And I, I think that says, I wasn't sure if I was going to go next to what Gene was. 
but I think in light of that letter, I'm going next. Sounds like it. Because <laughs> I, well, you know, I just, from... I, you know, what? I'm sorry, I just assumed that yours was next. But come to think of it, I think you might be. I think you might be right. That well, now I'm going next. We're going out of order. <laughs> that's all. Well, Gene, that's came August, out in August of 1975, and it's Marvel Team Up number 36, okay, so you're, yours featuring is, yours is next then, because Jeans is Jeans uh, is 77. So okay, yours is no, next. mine is 66. There you go. So 101. Gene should have gone first, actually. What? No, you mine have 101, is, right? No, no, no. I got 101. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, well, anyway, we're doing Marvel Team Up number 36, <laughs> which features Spider-Man and the Frankenstein monster. The cover shows the two stars in battle with Spider-Man presumably doomed as the monster has him by his right calf and is poised to tear him to shreds. And he's saying, you attacked me and now you will die. But Spider-Man in his usual flippant manner says, not if I cream you first, Patches. But then he thinks to himself, but how do I defeat a guy who's immortal? Immortal doesn't mean unbeatable. Immortal just means he's not going to die. Well, this is from that era when Spider-Man routinely killed all of his foes, clearly, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I can't kill him, what do I do? <laughs> is that is figuratively it... or literally? <laughs> Both. You know that, that dance move that people do when they're celebrating where they put their hand, you know, both arms straight out in front of them and they kind of pump them and they go. <laughs> that Doesn't that look like that's what Frankenstein's monster is doing there on the cover? He, he's doing some funky. I have no idea what you're talking about. Looks like he's doing a John Travolta. <laughs> yeah, he's doing some disco moves or something. <laughs> staying alive, staying alive. Uh, look, uh, look, uh, look on the cover, just with his left hand, he's got, his, he's got Spider-Man in his right hand. With his left hand, just by having his hand on whatever machinery that is, he's crunch, crumbling crunch, the, the metal crunch, machinery. Yeah. That's, how, that's how strong he is. Yeah, in the little spotlight window, he looks like John Travolta in Pulp Fiction a little bit. So. <laughs> doing the bat dance. The bat Doing the bat dance, exactly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is my note, in all seriousness. <laughs> So the story is titled Once Upon a Time in a Castle, and it's written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Sal Buscema, inked by everyone's favorite, Vinnie Coletta, lettered by Charlotte J., colored by Al Wenzel, and edited by Len Wein. Our story opens with two bank robbers making their escape when Spider-Man... Sorry? One of which is Wolverine. (laughs) Yeah. Wolverine died his hair blonde. It's blonde Wolverine. It's right. Sabretooth. <laughs> These guys look like rejects from Police Action over at Atlas Comics is what they actually look like. <laughs> well, one guy's name is Hermie. What's the other guy's name? He wants to be a dentist. I want to be a dentist. <laughs> Wait, doesn't he, on, on the splash page, doesn't the guy closer to the front look a little like Mark Ruffalo? Yeah. <laughs> it's ben, Benny. Benny. It's Benny and Hermie. Oh, I went to Benny and Hermes once and got fajitas. They were fantastic. I mean... <laughs> Benny and Hermes bagels. <laughs> so, anyways, Spider-Man engages the two of them in battle, which they start whining about. But as he's quipping, he's shot from behind by something. He wakes up, according to the narration, a few moments later. And much like Lou Costello, he's strapped down on a table next to the Frankenstein monster. <laughs> yeah, bud! Our bad guy enters the room, followed by lackeys, and his name is, get this, Baron Ludwig von Stupf. Von <laughs> But he prefers to be called the Monster Maker. These are so they, you, you know we got a deep thought book going here. 
Spidey, Spidey breaks free and then breaks the monster free as well, and they jump from a window is, immediately. Is this originally supposed to be a Spidey stupid story? You would think, so far. <laughs> so after they jump from the window, we go to chapter two. You know, in, in the Silver Age, you always know you're probably in trouble when they start breaking a regular-sized comic into chapters. <laughs> so this second chapter is called The Cold Wind of Doom. The two heroes are hanging on a, hanging out on a snowy mountain as skiing henchmen go by. Extras from a James Bond movie. Yeah. Yes, I was going to say, the spy who put me just broke out behind them. Presumably they're in search of our two heroes. The monster tells Spidey of his story, recapping his origin and his hibernation to current times. Yeah, but I, I see him t telling the story, but to the tune of uh, Don Henley's American Pie. It began long, long That would be Don McLean's. <laughs> he could do it to Don Henley's The Boys of Summer, perhaps. <laughs> so anyway, Spidey answers the monster by telling more of his own personal life than one would expect that he would tell a stranger, talking about his cloned dead girlfriend. And then they hear a damsel in distress and see a woman being accosted by the ski patrollers. They jump to her rescue, and then she almost falls off the mountain, but is rescued by the monster, and thanks him by guessing him and Spidey, which kind of seems strange as this goes on, but well, whatever. That brings us on to chapter three, To Make a Monster. We rejoin our blonde guesser with... A, and she's reviving Spidey and Frank, or actually, while Spidey and Frank are reviving. Turns out she's a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent whose mission is to stop Von Stupf and his plan of creating an army of monsters and combining our heroes into a monster supreme. <laughs> a monster mash. Oh, they, they agree to leave the monster behind because, well, he's not exactly stealthy. Spidey and this, the woman who's Agent Clemmer head to storm the castle, but the monster follows anyway. Spidey takes out some guards, and he and Miss Shield Agent go inside, followed shortly after by the monster. He makes his way into the castle and enters a room where Von Stupf is triumphantly declaring that he now has all his intended subjects and his replacement subject, the Man-Wolf. What a monster he's going to make now. Next issue, the Man-Wolf makes three. Uh, Spidey stupid stories. Yes, Scott. I think you hit it right on the head. I this... I think I think Spider Man broke that guy's neck a few pages back. The henchman that he hits right in the mouth and then zips him up, yanks him off the ground by his chin. I, mm -hmm. I just hear his neck going snap. Much <laughs> like Gwen. He, yeah, yeah. yeah like... He, he Gwen Stacy that his ass. So. You, you, you think he would have learned? Yeah. <laughs> On the page before that, though, it looks like the, the monster is feeling a little queasy, and that's why they left him behind. He suddenly turned green. <laughs> yeah, well, it's because he got, a, he got, a, he got a, a nasty cigarette there with the smoke coming out of his mouth. Yeah. He looks like <laughs> that one Donald Duck cartoon where he thinks his nephews are smoking, and so he makes them smoke all the cigars in the clubhouse. So. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> now, when, when uh, Agent Clemmer is skiing down the slope, what exactly is Spidey swinging his webs from? Trees. Uh, Mountains. I'm not accepting trees there. A ski lift. We can't I'm, call, I'm calling bullshit on that. A ski lift. A, a passing dirigible. <laughs> Thought balloons. <laughs> Thought balloons. Yeah. I mean, 
Marvel Team Up, first of all, Marvel Team Up is mistakenly thought to be a series of one and done stories. No, not so at this time. And and yeah, that's exactly the case. A lot of stories were two and three parters, and they would come up with some sort of method of handing off who he was teaming up with. For example, here, he's teaming up with the Frankenstein monster. In this issue, we end off with the man-wolf joining the fray. Next issue, Spider-Man and the man-wolf. And you continue and the, the story right from there. Yeah, the monster's still a vital part of the next issue, too, if I remember properly. Yep. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever seen the word what used as a sound effect. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. On uh, What? Yeah, it's like page 20 or whatever. What? <laughs> say what? Frankenstein say what? Yeah, the, the, the original take of that, I think he actually hit the guy that said, man, funk that. But uh, they <laughs> bought that at post and, and fixed it. <laughs> yeah, that, this was... Uh, this, this this was a Marvel team-up issue. It, is, it certainly I, I, was. I have fond memories of a lot of Marvel team-up issues. And, and honestly, this, this has a nostalgic quality that I enjoy. But I can't, for, by any stretch of the imagination, call this a well-written story. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the most interesting part of this, which is appropriate considering what our topic of conversation is, is the flashback where the mm -hmm. monster tells his story. About him, right. you know, being created and waking up in the in the in the sideshow, and we get some little peek ins on some of his his own adventures that he's had uh, in in his own comics. So I thought that was really neat. I actually really enjoyed that little um, uh, two page segment there of the monster giving us just a brief recap in case you didn't read Monster of Frankenstein. So I thought that was really neat. But yeah, the rest of this is, uh, like I said, I mean, I, I like Marvel Team Up. I, I personally like Marvel Two and One a bit more. But this this was, you know, I, I expected a, something a bit more outlandish given the team up. And this seemed a little, uh, I don't know, a little, a little, it's both bizarre and by the numbers at the same time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, actually, yeah. it makes total sense. It's, it's bizarre just because of the nature of it. But it's, it, Jerry Conway didn't, uh, didn't really stretch his creative muscles to try and come up with a story that would make sense. And that's why it seems like a Spidey Super Stories type thing, because he just, Threw it together and said, "Yeah, yeah, just accept this as fact." I mean, come on, Baron von Stoop, <laughs> the monster maker. Well, Isn't that well, that's like for like getting it on? Yeah, Isn't that's it? that's that's like yeah. uh, Lily von Stoop from uh, Blazing Saddles. Oh, yeah, exactly. Right. It's true. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> he would have an enormous schnauz. <laughs> <laughs> so on ah. page on page eleven, where Spidey and Frank are looking at the girl, and he says, "A woman." Is the colorist trying to say that Frankenstein has bad breath? That he makes the breath line green? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about his breath, but I was thinking the dude's had the same goddamn trousers on for two centuries. <laughs> he has got to be the definition of swamp ass, man. Gotta be. I think uh, I saw him at a con. <laughs> I think I smelled him at a con. <laughs> There, there's there's a there's a story for you. It's a, there, there is that old Iron Man issue during the Black Llama period where they end up at San Diego Comic Con. The Frankenstein monster ends up at San Diego, and nobody knows he's a monster. Just they think he's all just some hideous, un, unwashed, confunk, uh, addled con goer, <laughs> just wandering around with a really big bag. One of the things that disturbed me about this issue, and it's probably it's it's definitely being nitpicky, but it just really annoyed me 
is when he's unconscious on the streets of Manhattan, where he was trying to break up that uh, that robbery, he passes out in the last panel, right? He's in, he's in the streets of New York. Now, he wakes up in a castle, Lord knows where, Bavaria? I mean, I, I don't even know where it is. Mm-hmm. But clearly, it's no longer in Manhattan. And it says, what next? What, what isn't predictable is the scene he awakens to a few moments later. My guess is that this is going to turn out to be a castle in upstate New York. I don't know how many Spider-Man stories, or actually Marvel comic stories I've read, where they're in a castle, sometimes even Dr. Doom's castle, but it turns out to be upstate New York. And I'm like, I grew up in upstate New York, was there all my life. I only know of one castle in all of upstate New York. So, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah, but even getting to upstate New York from Manhattan is going to take more than a few moments. Yeah, this is true. And and you're telling me Spider-Man is stronger than the Frankenstein monster? He's able to break out of his metal whatever bars that are holding him, but Frank, well, he does the, have the, the monster can't. He does have the proportional strength of a spider, and the monster's the proportional strength of a dead guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> In fairness, they never, to my at least so far in my read through, no explanation has ever been given for the monster's size or some of his more superhuman attributes. Like, you flipped you know, over a call last issue. Yeah, I mean, he has superhuman strength. He's resistant to bullets. He's resistant to most injury. He's generally not affected by extremes in temperature, except for uh, if he's frozen in ice, then he'll go into suspended animation, much like Captain America. So he has all these superhuman attributes, but no explanation was ever given for any of them. Maybe he no. was maybe he was dosed with the superhuman with the super soldier serum. If he's so similar to Captain America, mm. see, I would love to find a, a story which would actually kind of tie. You know, generally I hate that sort of thing where where everything has to relate to everything else. But that would actually make a hell of a lot of sense if Doctor Erskine was actually using a variant of Frankenstein's formula in the creation mm-hmm. of Captain America. That I think that would be cool as hell to find that out. Yeah, you see on Erskine's bookshelf, he's got How I Did It by Baron von Frankenstein. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, in this version of the story, you know, like in the classic Universal one, the monster had those bolts in his neck and, you know, Frankenstein zapped him with lightning, you know, harness lightning to to animate the creature. But in this, in the Marvel Comics version, it shows, yeah, he essentially injects him with, yeah, it does. It looks like Gatorade and it brings him to life. So it's actually an injection into dead flesh that animates the creature, not lightning. So, again, you know, there's your tie right there. What was in that cocktail, you know? I, I think that could be interesting to, to tie it all together like that somehow. I don't think they ever will because I don't know. No, I don't. Toy. Oh, my God. We could have Frank and Cap. Oh, <laughs> God. We already had Cap Wolf. take To take your line of reasoning one step further... I mean, I, I know in, in Captain America, the first Avenger, Erskine was a German who fled from the Nazi occupation. Right. So ostensibly, he would have been working on this research in Germany, which would make sense if the creature is from Bavaria, that the Nazis would want to get their hands on this to create an army of undead soldiers like in Puppet Master 3. Well, maybe he stole the formula from Baron von Stupf. There well, you go. Also, but I'm just saying, he, you the, the, even the geography tends to work in favor of doing this story this way. Mm. Well, also is the whole, changes, you know, the whole thing with, 
I'm sorry, Bill. Go ahead. Maybe Erksine. Maybe they used to be Frankenstein. Erksine changed the F to an E. <laughs> well, also you've got you know the the whole you know his Hitler sending his men out into the world to to find you know objects of of occult interest and things mm-hmm. like that to use in their war. So you know there you go. Yeah. I think it's a cool oh. idea. I really do. It all works. It's yeah. all connected, man. <laughs> Now is it just? Am, am I the only one here getting kind of a Super Friends vibe from this? <laughs> you remember? You remember the episode where they they put half of Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman's essence into the Frankenstein monster, and apparently half of Batman's essence is gives is you that, his utility belt. Is that the one where they all end up giving their powers to Robin and they create like a Super Robin who is yeah. like eight feet tall or something? Yeah, because he then goes and fights the monster and Holy gets all the powers. Shit. Back. I haven't I haven't thought about that for probably thirty years or better, dude. Oh, that's shit, all, that's all, all I can that. think of looking at You're the last right. panel. You're you are so right. I had forgotten all about. Oh my god! Wow. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, we somewhere Casey Kasem was planning a voice for this. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That, that, um, that I'll go ahead. Also, I'm just going to say real quick, that last panel, it says, uh, Pilgrim, if you think this is wild, wait till you see uh, next issue when the Man-Wolf makes three. Anytime I see the word wild now, I have to give a shout out to, uh, to, uh, Andrew, to, um, to Andy Leyland and say, it's wild, Steve, it's wild. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, this book, it makes me feel so bad because Paul's right. There's a lot, um, I mean, a lot of sentimental value attached to this. I But I hadn't read this book in God only knows how many years. So I had extremely fond memories of this. And reading it again all these years later as an adult just makes me want to cry because, wow, it's <laughs> it did not hold up to my memories of it at all. You know, it's funny because I was fully prepared to defend this against uh ralph macchio's assertion that these characters don't ever need to meet and uh now having reread this i'm like wow i think maybe he was onto something because this yeah it just it didn't really work out um the cover i don't dig the cover while spidey is you know he's quintessential spidey he looks great the monster looks awful i hate the face he's making i hate the stupid dance move uh, monster that's in the you know in the box meant to represent him in the title you know part of the page. The dialogue is really kind of crazy. Yeah, I don't I don't care for the cover at all. I'd probably say a, uh, I don't know. I'd probably say a D. I mean, there's nothing at all wrong with Spider Man, but he's the only thing that works. Everything else, I I don't care. I don't like the coloring. I really don't like the way the monster looks. Yeah, I don't care. I'm gonna say D on the cover. Um. The interior art, there's again, there's nothing wrong with the Spider-Man portions of it. I mean, this to me is kind of, this is what I expect Spider-Man from this era to, to look like, more or less. This is kind of like my childhood version of Spider-Man. So everything with that looks okay. But then as soon as you get to the castle, and now it suddenly shifts, and it's kind of, sort of a horror comic, it does. I mean, as soon as you turn that page... To the page with Spidey and the monster on the slabs, all this, it really does feel like an issue of Spidey's stupid stories. I mean, to, even right down to the stupid villain, it really just <laughs> takes a serious, serious step down. 
there is not one single panel of the monster in this book that I like. He he has Durr face through the entire thing. Um, he's, you know, for everything that Merrick said about they couldn't do the uh, the Karloff version, the one thing they do here that, you know, both he and Plug actively avoided throughout their runs on the, you know, the monster's title, they didn't do the flat head thing. And through this entire issue, he's got that classic universal monster flat head that I hate so much. I really don't like that. So, yeah, I don't I just I can't stand the way the monster looks in this. He just really looks terrible. And the coloring is is very inconsistent. And especially with the monster himself, he keeps going from white to blue to green to gray. It's it's weird. And at that very last panel, the man wolf looks more like the uh, the man gargoyle than he looks like the man wolf. He's got a I don't know what that he's almost looks similar to like uh, like man bat or something. He's got a very like. I don't know what you'd call it, like almost like a bat type face. And it doesn't look like a wolf to me. It looks like some other kind of creature. That's a but, man bat, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, oh, the art. I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to say C minus. It's really rough. And the story, I think I'm I think I'm probably going to go with a with a C minus for the story as well. It's it's pretty bad. So yeah, overall, I don't know what that averages out to. I guess probably a, a C minus, I guess. But it's, it, I just, I'm sorry, it didn't hold up. Let's which, see. I'm gonna give it a C minus, a C minus, and a C minus. What does that, what does that average out? To? Well, I think I said a D for the cover, though. So, oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah. I just realized just that on, on page 14, uh, where, where on that fourth panel where the monster's tearing up the town, that's Gary Busey in the foreground right there. I just realized that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to give it a little bit of a counterpoint because uh, I actually like the cover. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the first time. Uh, you know, I... I I, I regret the fact that you mentioned Spidey Stupid Stories because now I can't look at this without thinking of it. But uh, I, I like the cover. I think it's you know it's an action scene. It it's kind of it it, it almost should have like on there the team up you never thought you'd ever see or something like that. But I don't know. It, it I thought it was dynamic and compelling to some extent, and I I bought it when it came out, and I was and I liked it then. So I'm gonna say the cover is I'm gonna give it a C plus. I'm not going to say it's a really good cover, but I think I think it's I don't think it's that bad. I, I don't mind the way the monster looks in it. Uh, I could I agree with you the uh, the shot of him at the top, you know, the next to the title, you know, the dance. We could do without the dance move, but disco. The interior art and story itself are overly simplistic. Yes, <sighs> it, it's like. Let's just punch punch out this issue fast while we want to you know work on other stuff that we actually care about. So I can't I can't give it better than a C on either, and I think that's exactly where I'm going to go with it. It's a C because it's dumb and it's just got no real internal logic, and possibly the most silly villain I've I've seen in many a day. Uh, but I still like it, so I'm going to say C. I'm going to give it an average rating. I give it a C. <laughs> And overall, I'll give the book a C. All right. Well, um, the cover—I I gave the cover a, a B minus. I, I think it's a nice enough image just because I like the 
the the juxtaposition again of, of Spider-Man and, and the Frankenstein monster. I agree with Scott. The monster does not look... He doesn't look like what I normally associate the Marvel Frankenstein monster looking like. And uh, But I think there's too much text. I think that's what I really... That kind of draws the most away from the cover for me is that there's there's four word balloons and you know they got the Marvel Comics Group banner, they got Marvel Team Up, they got both their logos, they got the Bedlam in the Balkans, uh, which kind of leads credence that it might not be upstate New York, but you know I never you never can tell. But they so, got there in a few moments. Yeah, a few <laughs> moments. You know, it's one of those things like when you're so tired you wake you fall asleep and you wake up like a second later and it's morning. Yeah, son of a. Um, so I gave the cover a, a B minus. The art I gave a C. It nothing really jumped out at me as being fantastic, but nothing was really all that particularly wrong. It kind of looks like what I normally expect a Marvel book from this era to look like, you know, but from the layouts, storytelling, and, and so forth. The story I was prepared to give it a D. I bumped it up to a C minus just because I really, like I said, like sequence. I thought that was really well done. A uh, quick way to get the reader caught up on kind of what the Frankenstein monster has been up to in the Marvel Universe. And I really liked, especially the side show um, aspects of it, because that's kind of a, a weird point of fascination for me. Um, and yeah, overall, I just gave it a C. It's it's an extremely average issue of Marvel Team-Up. The only thing that really makes it stand out to me is the strange guest stars in the monster and then the last page reveal of the man-wolf. Uh, I would have been more. I would have been less surprised if it was actually Jack Russell, the werewolf by night, instead of the man wolf. So that was a little bit of a of a swerve, mm. but uh, not not a huge swerve. You know, it wasn't like they had Satan or something in the last page, which would have been funny because then she just would have sucked the Monster Maker's soul in the first page of the next issue. And we. <laughs> I also just want to say real quick that Spidey doesn't seem like he's buying into this story either as as it, the issue goes on, which I think is kind of funny. He's almost like, I don't know about this, guys. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing could have turned out to be a dream sequence. Yeah. 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 Certainly and, they and never I, referred to it after the storyline ended. I was going to say, this took place during the original Clone Saga, so I'm surprised the Frankenstein monster didn't pop up in the 90s Clone Saga in some capacity. I, I'm honestly surprised by that, since everything else did from that story. <laughs> uh, well, I guess I'll go next. Uh like Luke said, the, the cover, it, it's a bit on the crowded side. And while I, I like the positioning, I like Spider-Man, I don't like anything else. Uh, the monster the monster looks like he just walked off the set of Planet of the Apes with the, the shape of the face and everything. And it's just, it's not it's not right. So I'm, I'm going to have to give the cover a D. Because it's one of those, uh, if I saw that, I would be intrigued by the, the title more than the art. The interior art, I'm a mark for Sal Buscema be, simply because he's the guy that drew the first ever comic book I owned. And I like the way he makes things look real, but it it's a little bit off kilter in some ways. The monster's face keeps changing, and it... I would have to go with a C for the art. It's just, it's average. And that's the best thing I can say about it. As far as the story, the story is weird. It is all over the place as far, well, as far as location, it's all over the place. And it apparently Spidey got hit with a, a teleport beam because that's the only way he could wake up in the Balkans a few moments later. I, like Luke, I like the flashback and you caught up on on everything I would have 
like to see some editor's notes in there saying uh, as seen in such and such an issue, but that's my personal hangup. Uh, it just it gets kind of strange, and uh, I'd have to go with I'm going to call it a C minus on the on the story. Uh, so that would give us an overall. I'm going to call it a C minus overall. Okay, Doctor Bill. Um. Well, I'm back. I, I had to step out for a moment to see why there's a helicopter circling my house. It's the CIA. What did you do? <laughs> I thought I was I thought I was gonna walk outside and I was gonna be in Pink Floyd the Wall. You, yes, you, you be <laughs> you on the porch. Stand still, fatty. <laughs> and spotlight. Yeah, then you come down. to realize they're actually you come to realize they're actually there for Alvin. Yeah. <laughs> He's the mastermind uh, behind the international crime ring. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the cover, well, I I love the disco Frank in the little in the window. And uh, who who did we say actually did the cover? I we didn't say, but I, I think it's Mike Esposito. Hmm. Uh, the Frank in here is a little different from the Frank in the story, but that's okay. But overall, the cover it's not iconic. But I'm still gonna. I still like it a little bit. Um, so I'm gonna actually gonna give it like a B minus. Now the interior art. Oh well. Well, you know one thing I'm really glad of is that Benny and Hermie made it away. <laughs> uh, they were able. So cr- crime they, does does pay. Yeah, they ran all the way to dental school. Yeah, exactly. Or they opened a bagel shop with all the money they stole. Yeah. So um, and the art. I don't know. It's like in in, it's. For me, it's not that consistent. Some of them are good. It's up, it's down. Von Stoop is ridiculous looking. I can't tell if he has a monocle or just really he hasn't gotten enough sleep in that first shot. Um, uh, overall, art-wise, I mean, the flashbacks look pretty cool. But I think overall, I got to give the art a C. And now the story is, is, you know, often when I say, oh, it's 70s fun... It's 70s camp. Yeah. And I'll sometimes grade it a little higher. I'm still going to go with a C on this. So I guess that puts it at like a C plus, I guess, overall for the whole book for me. Okay, cool. So with two more books to go, let's move right along. Gene, what you got? Well, I actually, I don't have a comic. I have a magazine. Well, then moving along, Bill, what do you got? Because <laughs> bookless is better than magazine, apparently. <laughs> no, you go with your little magazine. <laughs> All right, what I have is I have Creepy Number Seven by Warren Publishing. Uh, came out in February 1966. Now there are several stories in here. The one I'm going to be covering is called The Body Snatcher because it is the closest to Victor Frankenstein that I could get. The artist on this one is Reed Crandall, who didn't do a whole lot beyond this this kind of artwork. Uh, I don't think he ever was actually in any superhero comics or anything. The author of the story is Robert Louis Stevenson, and it is adapted for comics by Archie Goodwin. We open the late 19th century city of Edinburgh, where Dr. Wolf McFarlane is walking down the street with his new assistant, Fetz. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. Toddy McFarlane? 
Toddy McFarlane. That's yes. what he calls. That's what a man <laughs> driving in a wagon calls him. So wow. we're, we're sorry. predicting uh, the art fad of 30 years hence. Uh, the wagon moves on, and Fetz asks whose man was, to which McFarlane responds, his name is Gray. As they make their way to the Edinburgh Medical School, where McFarlane is the professor of anatomy, he explains that there is another side to their profession, and that is Gray's side. Fetz is aghast at the well, that a well-respected professor would associate with grave robbers. But McFarlane insists that all they do is pay for bodies and ask no questions, for conscience sake. As time wears on, Fetz learns that his duties as assistant include helping McFarlane dig up graves and receiving bodies from men like Gray. One morning, Gray brings in a body that Fetz recognizes as a flower girl, who he saw alive and well the previous evening. Gray forcefully assures Fetz that he is mistaken which the assistant agrees to. When Fetz brings this possible murder to McFarlane's attention, the professor refuses to report anything, stating that he and Fetz are also guilty by association. Fetz swallows his pride and the girl is dis dissected, and no one realizes who she was. Later, Fetz is in a pub where McFarlane and Gray are drinking. Gray says that he will always have the friendship of McFarlane because he knows McFarlane's secrets. Disgusted, Fetz leaves the pub and returns to his room. At four the next morning, McFarlane shows up with Gray's body, not explaining what happened to him. The two men cut the body up for the class to dissect, despite Fetz's protests. Before the week is out, the stock of bodies is once again running low, so McFarlane and Fetz go to a nearby graveyard and dig up the recently buried wife of a farmer. They put her body in a sack and it sits between them in their carriage. On the way back, the bumpy roads make the body shift first from one, and then to the other. Eventually, this gets on the nerves of both men, and they decide to see what, why the woman is so heavy all of a sudden. They open the sack, and in a flash of lightning, the body is revealed to be the dead and long-dissected body of Grey, who comes to life and put his, puts his arms around them while they scream, and the horse runs wild. So what did you guys think? Where's Frankenstein? Uh, <laughs> uh, I like this quite a bit, Gene. I, I appreciated you uh, picking this out. I, 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 I'm a fan of the Warren magazines, and uh, even to this day, Dark Horse actually publishes uh, a, a new version of both Creepy and Eerie. Mm -hmm. And I always liked did adaptions of either novels or short stories in not just uh, the Warren ones, but also Marvel and DC. Um, one of my personal favorites is from an issue of Tower of Shadows, which was a Marvel uh, mystery book from this era where they actually did Pickman's model. So I really enjoyed this. Uh, I thought it was, was neat because I've never actually read the Stevenson story, but I have seen the film with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. So getting a comic adaption of it, I thought was, was really neat. I thought the, uh, the art was very effective and, you know, maybe it, it kind of made me think about this story. It's like, hey, well, Stevenson was writing an EC comic before EC comics were a thing, apparently. Yeah, yeah. It, it's nice because you get to see this is if Victor Frankenstein was working at the university instead of on his own, this is the kind of thing he would have done. He probably would have paid people to go out and bring him the bodies rather than having Fritz do it all. Mm -hmm. Of course, the scene where they are digging the, digging up the grave, all I could think of was... 
this is this is this is uh, filthy work. It could be worse. It could be raining. <laughs> raining. Oh, by the way, it is. <laughs> yeah, I. This is one, and it's actually the this issue. I have the original issue for this, and it was. It's one of the ones that my dad gave me. Because this is the kind of stuff he would read growing up. He wasn't into superheroes. He loved the horror comics. So this is... I can't tell you how many times I've read this story. It's just... It's moody. And you have the nice twist at the end where they get the super supernatural comeuppance. That really makes it feel like an EC story right there. Yeah. The last page, supernatural twist. And the, you know, all, all you're missing really... And, and, and I guess we do kind of get the, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Uncle Erie laughing, you know, laughing at their plight, you know. Or Uncle yeah. Creepy, not Uncle Erie, uh, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Erie was actually just starting when this issue came out, because mm -hmm. on the inside front cover is an ad for a uh, uh, reserve your subscription to Erie. <laughs> I like the opening page with the way... The background has been drawn with the with all the horizontal lines making yeah, it looks up foggy. Make, <laughs> you, right, right, making it look somewhat foggy because of that. That's really pretty cool. And then having Holmes and Watson on the uh, left. I say yeah. Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's even the late like 19th the, century. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the the detail on that page really looks nice. I mean, the the clapboard on the side of the wagon and the the patterns on the the coats and. Uh, even down to the cobblestones all on the road. Everything looks really nice, you know. That was one of the strengths of these these Warren mags is he would get these artists that, again, like you said, Gene, were not uh, guys that normally would do a lot of superhero work. They, they, they did this kind of stuff, and so you got some... Some really detailed work, especially in the black and white format, where it would it would could be reproduced very crisply, and those lines didn't all kind of um, muddy up when you you went to a color printing process. Yeah, the the line work, especially in the backgrounds on this, is is very very fine, and it it really brings out the detail and everything. Especially if you look in the the scene in the pub on uh, it's page thirty eight where they have the cross swords and then they have the, the different kind of steins and the, the mm -hmm. oil lamp up on the mantelpiece. It's, it, it's just great stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, look, yeah, I, I get a real kind of, uh, I'm sorry, just real quick, just kind of a, a real kind of like Alex Raymond sort of vibe from this. The, with the use of the, the lines, uh, the, the photorealism style inking, right. I get a real Alex Raymond vibe off of this. And so I, and I, and I like Raymond. So I really, I really appreciate the art in this for sure. Mm. And everywhere there's a light source, a candle or a lamp or a gas lamp, there's the illusion of light is given by the absence of any 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 lines being drawn there, just the stark white, and then lines coming from it as if it was a light, you know, like a light source. Right, radiating I mean, out and gets progressively darker as you go out. Right. I mean, it's a simple technique, but it's I think it's really effective here. Oh yeah, I. I think the story you know it's kind of a simple story you know? oh it is yeah and, and i i think the strength of reading this is the artwork the detail work in it is is really really good and yet it's not it's not it's very different from other artists who are you know the ones that we would consider the the, the real great detail people and i think a lot of that is based on the fact that this was going to be printed in black and white so there's a lot more done as far as the backgrounds and the you know the line work of everything so uh it, it, it's 
it evokes a different type of feeling than color art does. And, and I really can appreciate it in a story like this. I, it, it's different, very, very different from when you take the color books and reproduce them in black and white and people rave about, oh, seeing it in black and white, it's so much more effective. Like if you take Gene Colan's Tomb of, Tomb of Dracula work mm-hmm. and you can look at it in black and white and, and there's, there's something to be gained by that. That still wasn't intended to be in black and white. That was, you know, fully anticipating color coming in. So it does feel to me like when I look at that artwork, something's missing. This artwork was clearly intended to stay black and white. If they added color to it, would it would look like something is wrong with it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and it it it's just really really well done. And and the storytelling is very simplistic. It's not dynamic, but it just kind of moves along and moves along and moves along and gets you to that ending. So, again, it's kind of a little bit, some different kind of choices here from what I'm used to, but really well done, put together very, very well. Yeah, well, I, the it was adapted by Archie Goodwin, so I'm pretty sure he knows pacing. Oh, there's plenty of people who know pacing and still, yeah. do a pin, <laughs> and still can't do it. it. <laughs> Knowing it and doing it right aren't always the same thing. Very good point. So, you know, it's in in this instance. And, and the pacing, I, I think, more often than not, comes down to the artist. True. Yeah, and what's what's nice is, yes, they're, they're pretty much square panels, but they're not, it's not a, a nine-panel grid. In fact, you'll be hard-pressed to find any grid in here. Even if it's just six panels on a page, they're offset. So it's not just you're looking at a tic-tac-toe board or anything. Until you get to the second to last page where the body is rocking back and forth between him and he's tilting the panels to give you this illusion of movement in the carriage. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's appropriate for the story. I mean, this isn't... This isn't like, you know, a a pulp uh, dime novel horror story. You know, that this is a fairly staid, you know... uh, 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 straightforward story there's not like you know shambling corpses or uh two-fisted men of action or anything like that so having a fairly you know not uh, like i said fairly straightforward panel layout suits the story because it's it's the uh the plot that's the the, what draws us in here it's not the action or something like that you know right it's a cerebral thing right so that it were and again it's another ec sort of thing ec was uh, in a lot of ways um depending on the artist uh, like again, like um, you know, Jack Davis would do a lot of his stuff, where he did stick to maybe not kind of the similar thing, square panels in a grid where he might change the size of some of the panels, but it, it served the story because it was telling you the, the story. It wasn't about uh, you know grotesquerie or anything like that. Whereas someone like Graham Ingalls, ghastly Graham Ingalls, who would do his stuff with the Haunt of Fear, his layouts were always more fluid because his was always about some kind of shambling nasty gross thing you right. know right. so that i i liked it a lot I, I, this is uh you know that you'd see these kinds of stories not infrequently in the war and magazines be adapting uh you know pieces of literature into graphic form and they were they're pretty classy you know i think that that's yeah. a good way to put this this is a classy adaption of the the stevenson story and uh, it doesn't doesn't uh, you know try to spice it up with gore it presents the story as it is and just makes the the art really really pretty Yes, definitely. Scott, you've been very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. So, Bill, what do you think? 
Oh, is Scott going to say anything? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> he, 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 went to, he went to you, so go ahead. <laughs> um, another thing I noticed that's uh, a nice little touch is in a few spots where you have the wheel of the carriage, it's, uh, it's see-through, showing the speed of the carriage. Yes. Although, because if this was a static shot, then you would see the spokes. So, you know, it still kind of makes it look like the carriage is moving even in a, a, a static picture, which I thought was a neat little touch. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I had noticed that until you pointed it out. You know, because in other where they're actually standing still, you can see all the spokes, but in all the shots where it's moving, there's the wheels aren't, you know, the spokes are not visible. So, but yeah, this this was a nice little, you know, it's it, it's a tried but true tale of uh, comeuppance, and I'm uh, I guess if I had to do a grade, I would give this art an A, and the story, eh, it, it I'd give this story, nah, it is a classic. I guess I'm gonna give the story an A. Do we need to do the cover too, or no? Because the cover actually has nothing to do with this story, so I would say oh, okay. don't bother with the cover. All right, so I'm giving it an A. Right. Actually, we, you know, dude, Scott, did you have more than eh? <laughs> hey. um, yeah, I, th- I thought it was interesting. It, this, it, it's not really my preferred style of art, although I, you know, I see the merit in it and everything. Um, I don't know. It, it's really, it's kind of a mixed bag because it's like just when you're getting into the story, it's over. So, mm. you know, that that part of it was a little bit weird. Um, yeah, you know, it's tough. I'm not sure how to really grade it fairly. Um, I mean, I think the art's really good, but it's just, it's not really my preferred style. This to me is very reminiscent of, um, do you remember those, I don't know if they were actually meant for schools, but it seems like I never went to a school as a kid that didn't have those, um, they were like classic illustrated, like knockoffs. They were, but they were more like a tabloid size. And they adapted like a lot of classics, you know, like like literature. You know, like was I can that remember the ones the... you brought up, um, Luke, in a letter. Uh, no, because my, my, I, the ones I brought up were were uh, Marvel Classics comics or Marvel oh, Comics okay. classics, which were regular Marvel comic size, just oversized. They were, I think, fifty two pages, but and mm. they and they were in color as well, not black and white. I I know the ones you're talking about, Scott, but I for the I cannot think of what the heck those are called. Yeah, but yeah, they they had the kind of uh, you know liney photorealistic style is what I'm remembering that too. Yeah, mm. yeah, very much like that. So, yeah, I beyond that, I I, I don't <laughs> I don't know what to say about it. it. It's just not it's not really my my style of comics. You know what I mean? It's yeah, it's oh, not yeah. your scene. I can understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not my bag, baby. Yeah, I guess I'll I'll give my one book. I'll give my ratings on it. Uh, it's not necessarily. I, I don't disagree with you, Scott. It's not necessarily my preferred style. Certainly, I don't think this would work for a superhero book, which is, you know, my bread and butter is superheroes. But it is very, very to me reminiscent of the old EC books and almost better done than those. But the same type of atmosphere the same type of looks on people's faces the same type of lighting uh and i think it's very very well done so i'm, I'm gonna go with an a on the artwork 
story wise it's you know it's it's i know it's a classic but it's kind of a simplistic story and the twist isn't really that hard to figure out going into it <laughs> I, I i just you know I, I don't think it's anything you know i i, I don't think it's the greatest story going so i'm gonna just say a b on the story and uh that's it for my rating uh, i'm gonna mirror uh what paul said i, I really like the art as uh, as i was saying earlier uh, I really like all the use of the the line work to show all the detail. Um, Dave Sim would have a would have a ball with this story, I think. Uh, so I, I'm giving the artwork an A. And again, the, the story it, it is a classic. It is a good ad, uh, adaptation of the classic, but it's not like um, you know it, it's not a. Uh, there's a reason there's only been I think one adaption of the Body Snatcher. It's not a really. Um, it's not not the most creative of horror tales. So I'd give it a B. And just, you know, so uh, A on the art, B on the story. I guess that averages out to a B plus for the segment. Yeah, I'm actually right with you guys there because the art is gorgeous. It's it's not A plus material, but it is definitely an A. because Just of all the, the details that are in there, the use of the line work, the use of light and shadow, it, it, it works really well. Uh, but yeah, the story is... It's an adaption of a short story by someone from the late 19th century. So it's you only have so much to work with. And like Scott said, it, it is kind of a, an abrupt ending. And that's mainly due to page count. You have to get X number of stories and X number of pages. So, yep, you know, things get a little squished towards the end of this one. So, yeah, I'll 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 also give the, the story a B so that. That would average out to either B plus, A minus. Take your pick. All right, One thing so... I noticed, uh, two, two stories on, the same artist is doing does the story called Hot Spell. And yes. that art, art is a little bit different than we had in the Body Snatchers. Oh, yeah, because that one's a little more dynamic. You have a lot more action in that one. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly, you know, it's not superhero fights or anything, but you have more action scenes. So his art style changes. Mm-hmm. And then the story that's in between is drawn by Gray Morrow, which we were saying that was the one that did the man thing origin, right? Wasn't that what you said, mm -hmm. Paul? That's yeah. what you said. Yeah. Yeah. And that one's more photorealistic. Yeah. But yeah normally well, we well that one well that one looks like it's it's more it's not inked in the same way. It, it's not inked no. with the uh, that 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 Alex Raymond Stan Drake style. This this has more brush in it than uh, than than technical pen. Yeah, it, it, it almost looks com like like it was drawn on a computer. Which, considering when it was produced, we know it wasn't. Yeah, I'm saying that. I think I think the it, it's more uh, brush than than pen, so it has more of a lusher feel to it. Yeah, it's like it's it's almost uh, painted more than penciled and then inked, really. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but that's a that's a tale for another night. Yes. Yes, mm. and and as I started to say, normally we give you three books, but with this many people in the room, we're giving you four. So, Luke, Bill, you guys fight it out to see who gives us the fourth book. All right, Two geeks so in Bill, rock, one geeks Lee. Well, so rock paper scissor. Okay, ready? <laughs> one, two, three, shoot! I got shoot a rock paper scissors lizard Spock. <laughs> <laughs> now what's got in the room? I got a fist. Uh, what do you got? I got a rock. That means I win. <laughs> rock, rock we always tie. wins. Yeah, no, rock always wins. That's the, it's like, oh, I've got paper. I hit him in the head with the rock. I win. So. <laughs> that was on uh, on Seinfeld. 
<laughs> when uh, Kramer and Mickey do rock, paper, scissors. Yeah. <laughs> rock, uh, what's his name? Mickey just says, rock always wins. Well, take it away, rock. <laughs> All right. Uh, the book I brought is The Invincible Iron Man number 101. And uh, you might ask, look, what does this have to do with, uh, with the monster of Frankenstein? Well, if you'd look at the cover, you would see that Iron Man faces the most unexpected foe of the year, the Armored Avenger, battles for his life against the monster of Frankenstein. And, and a whole uh, bunch of midgets with clubs. <laughs> yes. Our, our, uh, our cover does, in fact, our, our cover is by uh, Val Mayerick, which I thought was very cool. And uh, it shows our, uh, our hero being, he's, he's prone on the ground, wrapped up with a chain around his neck and his thigh, and the chain is being held by the uh, grim-faced visage of the uh, Frankenstein's monster while rejects from Todd Browning's freaks dance around ready to bash the uh, the Golden Avenger with their clubs uh, very uh, kind of this very classic issue this is one I saw the cover for years before I ever got around to actually filling in my Iron Man collection so this is one I've known about uh, for quite a long time uh, the story is called Then Came the Monster it is the uh, writer is Boisterous Bill Mantlo. The artist is gorgeous George Tusca. Mighty Mike Esposito is the inker. Uh, B. Patterson is the letterer. Don Warfield is the colorist. And assertive Archie Goodwin is the editor. And uh, our story goes a little something like this. So flying low to conserve power after his flight with the Mandarin, uh, which was in issue 100, Iron Man finds himself... Uh, at a Chinese airbase and immediately comes under fire from the red Chinese pilots. But uh, he manages to fight them off enough that he can uh, steal into a fighter jet and take off. And um, it turns out that the communists let him go because they said, well, it's a small price to pay for having getting gotten him gotten rid of the Mandarin because uh, they Chinese obviously hate the Mandarin as much as, uh, as the West does. So or, Iron Man... If- if this was Andy Leyland, he would say... The Mandarin. The Mandarin. <laughs> so, uh, Tony Stark falls asleep in the jet, which is on autopilot, heading for the west, as we cut back to um, Stark Enterprises, and we see Chrissy, Longflef- Chrissy Longfellow and her uh, driver. Um, oh, it's Harry, Harry I is this guy's name. And uh, they're and they're going and doing stuff, and they're being chased by Jasper Sitwell in a story unrelated to the Frankenstein monster. So we shall cut back to the Yugoslav-Greek border, just making sure that we know this is in fact during the Cold War, as the NATO base on the border opens fire on the Chinese jet, assuming it to be part of the warning that was sent out about the Mandarin attacking the West from the previous issue. So they open fire with the uh, anti-aircraft guns and the uh, surface-to-air missiles. And they blast the jet, and uh, it catches fire. And so all it's all Iron Man can do to um, make it out of the jet in one piece until the missiles explode and knock him out of the sky. And he goes tumbling down, uh, down the side of a mountain and crashes. And as he lays there prone, uh, besides a curious deer looking on, we see in the shadow, uh, in the shadow, small, misshapen, spear-wielding figures coming to investigate. Chris Tyler uh, and uh, Chris Honeywell. Chris Tyler and Chris Honeywell <laughs> there. With uh, all with their Beatles mop tops as well, uh, the 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 little guys soon give way to their big brother, who turns out to be the Frankenstein monster. And uh, the Frankenstein monster says that they have to take this one back to mother, and that she will decide what to do with him. So he hoists Iron Man up on his shoulder with very little effort, 
and they go walking through the spooky forest as the sun sets and keep walking through the forest until they reach Castle Frankenstein. And as they enter Castle Frankenstein, Iron Man uh, suddenly wakes up and he jumps out of uh, the monster's hold and finds himself face to face with a bevy of freaks, which would be the unexpected foe from the cover. Uh, of course, this being a Marvel mag, they immediately get into a fight. Um, the uh, uh, the Frankenstein monster hits Iron Man with a backhand Uranage fist with a rang right in the jaw, and then pins him down with one leg and proceeds to uh, straight hammer fist him right in the helmet over and over again. Shellhead uses some bong, 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 bong. <laughs> Shellhead uses some leverage to uh, judo judo throw the uh, monster off of him. He is then besieged by the uh, by the other uh, the other freaks who clobber him with numbers, and uh, he thinks to him, uh, Shellhead thinks to himself, "Well, if I take out the big one, he seems to be the leader. Maybe they'll stop." So he shoots the monster with a repulsor ray, but uh, the monster no sells it completely and gets up. Uh, so the the fight is still on, and um, so Iron Man chops the monster in the midsection. And uh, they, he says, uh, you can end this fight by calling off your gnomes and telling me where I am. And the monster says, you are in the castle of my mistress, the daughter of creation. And uh, But that's all that the monster's willing to give him as he yanks a chain out of the wall and wraps Shellhead up in it. See, it's like truth in advertising. It's like the cover. They wrapped him in a chain and then the, uh, the children beat on him. But uh, Iron Man's not having any of this crap, and he uses his boot jets to get away from the, uh, the pummeling and um, basically shoulder block the Frankenstein monster in the back. Then he does like the classic uh, action figure from the 60s and breaks the chains off of himself. And uh, he says that he, uh, that the monster says that uh, he's been saying the other, that the, they have to save the mistress from the other, and says, so Iron Man says that he'd like to take, a, he'd like to meet this other. And so. Uh, right before they can do anything, though, um, a strange energy uh, field envelops Iron Man with a ZAM, and he's surrounded by uh, metallic energy discs that are drawing power from him, so his armor is going to overload and before he can react. And he collapses to the ground, and we see crashing through to, down the steps the visage of the Dread Knight riding his Hellhorse. And he says, imprecisely, precisely you misbegotten mutated mistakes, you either serve me or die, for none dares defy the Dread Knight. The next issue, the daughter of creation. Um, like I said, th this was one that I remember reading about when I first started getting into uh, seriously finishing my Iron Man collection. Um, there was a site that was around for a long time. There was an Iron Man fanzine called Advanced Iron, and it was run by a, a gentleman named Hube. And he did his Cube Iron Man review, and he also did the Advanced Iron fanzine at advancediron.org. And this was an era that Hube really didn't like, so I, I wasn't sure what to think about when I started getting these issues for myself. Uh, but I, I really like this era of Iron Man. For, uh, you know, Archie Goodwin writes for quite a while, and then when Goodwin moves over to editor, Bill Mantlow takes over. This is the period before uh, Bob Layton and Dave Michelinie took over for their first run. And uh, I just thought this was a, a lot of fun, and I had, a, I had a, I loved the fact that I had an excuse to break this issue out and uh, get a chance to read it, uh, which I had not done in quite a long time. So what did you guys think? Page 26, that fourth panel, that first, uh, the guy with the, uh, with the spear there that's lunging for Iron Man. Isn't that Jeff Dope? <laughs> 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 I'm sure Jeff would appreciate that. 
Um, I can't help but, you know, every just about every panel of the monster, the staples that are holding his skull, uh, skull cap on look more almost like a like a very thin crown. So between that and his long hippie hair, <laughs> I'm sorry, but he totally reminds me of the foppish prince from... Uh, Monty Python and the quest for the Holy Grail. When it's like, <laughs> but I don't like her. Uh, what's not what's to wrong like? with her? She's, She's got, got huge tracts of land. Someday all of this will be played by Terry Jones. Someday all of this will be yours. What the, the curtains? curtains. <laughs> not the curtain land. We live in a bloody swamp. We need all the land we can get. I the, don't uh, want that. At, at the top of page 22, when, when he's pummeling him with his fists, it's like they took it right out of Age of Ultron and reversed the tables, and he should be going, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I do not like George Tusker artwork at all. I can't imagine why. I so it's just... been said before. <laughs> no? and, and I don't think that... Uh, that Mike Esposito did him any favors in here too, because he, he really <laughs> used a thick line throughout this whole book, and it, it's just it doesn't look good to me at all. Mm. I, I do not like this artwork. Who was so th- that? This is... uh, I'm sorry. Who was that guy no, on um, that worked on Invaders and Frank Robbins? Frank Robbins. Yeah, this a who, lot. Who of I this happen to actually like. like. Yeah, but a lot of this looks like Robbins to me. I got to be honest. That shot of Tony Stark on the top of page 10, that second panel, that really looks like Frank Robbins to me. Actually, that that does look similar to Frank Robbins. But uh, uh, I, actually, I like Frank Robbins. Frank Robbins has... I, 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 don't, I, I understand that Frank Robbins did not draw in a classic sense the way we look for things to be drawn. But there was, there was something about his artwork that transcended what you saw on the page... And created this feeling of motion that just lent itself to an action book, especially when he did something like The Invaders, where it was basically a golden age story. So you could, you know, let it transport you in time and make you feel like you're reading a golden age story for real. George Tuska was just George Tuska. And see, that's where I disagree with you, because, again, and and we've talked or I I have talked about this on emails and you guys have discussed it. And we've dismissed your thoughts. Actually, yes, that, that's a very accurate statement, so I'm glad you can come out and admit that, Paul. Uh, the, uh... I can. <laughs> and I don't mean it as an insult to you. I just disagree with what you say. Oh, well, that's the thing. I, I've, I've always held that, um, you know, and, and, and I think, again, this, this is something that we've discussed cor- via correspondence before, is that Tuska is, is not well-suited to a lot of superhero stuff, but the stuff that he does in Iron Man, I think he's well-suited to because it's technology. And it's ugly people, you know. I mean, that, that's one. If you look at the era when Tuska was doing Iron Man, the the I, I always thought his armor looked good, and all the ugly people looked good. And there was a lot of ugly people in the book, you know. <laughs> at that time, I'm I'm thinking specifically of like the board of directors of Stark Enterprises, which were all these kind of caricatures of, you know, the uh, middle management suck ups and these guys with, you know, these one percenters with their big cigars and all that nonsense. And and he made them look ridiculous because they were these these kind of uh, grotesque looking humans they were they were caricatures of real people and the other thing i think that tuska does really good in this book 
is his storytelling. The sequence on pages 10, 11, and then there's a couple of ads, and it finishes up on page 14 of Shellhead getting uh, the plane is uh, open fire on with the anti-aircraft guns and then the SAMs, and he gets blasted out of the sky and tumbles down and basically rolls down the the, the, the forested mountain to come to a, a crashing stop at the bottom. I thought the storytelling was excellent through there. Reminded me a lot of that sequence in The Avengers where they're dealing with with falling out of the plane and going down the mountain with, with Loki and Thor. So, like I said, I mean, that that's always been my thing with, with Tuska is that when I see him on books other than Iron Man, I agree with you guys. But on Iron Man, I always thought he really, that was his fit. And I, I like the look here. I like the heavy inks because that, I think, suits Iron Man. I don't want a fine line on Iron Man. He's a big, heavy character, you know? I'm, I'm going to accept that, your point on the storytelling on that three-page sequence because that, that is well well done. I, I agree with you on that. But the uh, I, I still disagree with you on, on your point as far as Tusk's drawing of, of the ugly people because Tusk didn't draw ugly people to draw ugly people. Tusk drew ugly people because that's how he drew people. Uh, and, 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 and they all look the same. If they're not, if it's not a character model that somebody else came up with, they all have that fat faced buck tooth, ginger headed, curly haired, stupid look that he drew on every character. So I, 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 I have to reject your point on that. I'm sorry. And that, well, that's, you know, that's why they make 31 flavors. Cause some of you like shitty ice cream. So. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, like I said, that's uh, that it, it's it's a, you know it's it's subjective, it's opinion, and I and I'm more prone, obviously. I like George Tuscan Iron Man, so I like I said, so that that's me. I think, and uh, but getting to your what you said about character models, I think uh, one of my I do love the last page of this because when I first got into Iron Man, it was in the '90s. The first book, the first Iron Man issue I bought was 321, which was right in the middle of the cross. At the same time that I got into Iron Man, that was when the Marvel Action Hour Iron Man cartoon had just started. Mm. And one of the Mandarin's henchmen on that show was the Dread Knight. And I have the Dread Knight toy to this day, standing with all my other Toy Biz Iron Man figures up in my bonus room. So I really dig the Dread Knight. And I, I, it, as, as a kind of, you know, Bronze Age update of the old school Black Knight with the Hell Horse here, I really dig the Dread Knight. I think Tuska has a nicely designed, if very 70s, costume for him. So uh, that that's that's something I personally dig. Again, I may be biased. See, if I remember right, the Dread Knight's mount is actually the Black Knight's horse that he mutated. That Yeah, well, actually, it's it's uh, the Victoria von Frankenstein that mutates her, but mutates right. the horse. Yes, yeah. It is, uh, it is the but Black Knight. But his, his Dread Knight himself, the horse looks very impressive on that page, actually, yeah. and, and threatening. Uh, and kind of scary looking, although you'd wonder how it would run on those claws. Right. But the Dread Knight himself looks smallish and not all that imposing. And his leg doesn't look like it's lined up with his body. The mm. wing is, is is disguising the fact that he has a, uh, a you know, his, 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 his hip came out of the joint. No, it works because he's bent no, at the knee. His, and the foot he's is bent at the back. knee holding onto the hell horse, yeah. Or he's got a dislocated hip. Or he's bent at the knee like he's riding a horse. I know you. I know you're. I know you're. You're in New York. They have horse farms up there. Go up to my old neck of the woods. Go to North Salem and look at the horse farms, and you can see. I think they barbecue the horses up there. Do they use smoke and rub? Uh, I don't know. Oh, they must. Otherwise, not barbecue, right? <laughs> yes, that's true. Smoke and rub this. <laughs> 
You see, wasn't I, the I don't... Knight, wasn't the Dread Knight in the Fantastic Four at one point? I wanted. Mm-hmm. I seem to remember the Fantastic Four, uh, him being in there with Dragon Man at some point, or maybe I'm I, just... I'd, be, I'd be willing to accept that. Considering Dread Knight's origin involves Doctor Doom, so it would make yeah. sense for him to tangle with the Fantastic Four. Yeah, I, but I don't know that for sure. I only know him from from Iron Man. I keep thinking the Dread Knight Roberts, <laughs> Dread Pirate Roberts. I don't have too much problem with the artwork because it's kind of the, the style of artwork I expect from this era of Marvel. There are a couple panels, though, like the, the introduction of the, the monster. It's like someone plopped down a promotional statue in the middle of the forest. It's not like he walked up or anything. He's just standing there staring straight ahead, arms at the sides. It's like, okay, here's the character model. I'll just draw that. It, it's all weird, but I, I do like some of the things they do, like the uh, the view from inside the helmet looking out and Tony yeah, realizing what the hell is going on here. That is a nice shot to see from, from Tony Stark's p- point of view what he's actually looking at. Yep. Um, I like the last panel, like you said, when he comes to rest in the forest with the, with the deer looking at him like the deer is going, what the f- <laughs> <laughs> you all right there buddy yeah <laughs> and, and then took, the deer goes you, oh shit midget with spears i'm out of here i also really like the the last panel on page 16 with the uh with the blood orange moon and all the the, the fog and the, the silhouettes of the the monster carrying iron man and back to the mm-hmm. castle and we see all the children following you kind of want to hear uh hi ho <laughs> <laughs> I was it's all really hoping Iron Man we go. I was really hoping this was going to turn out to be the Dingling family from that host set. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Freak family. Oh, uh, well, you want to rate this one? Yep, go ahead. I'll go ahead and rate it. Um, uh, the cover I gave a, a B. Um, I think Mayrick's. Uh, I, I like Mayrick's Iron Man, even though he's not a character he drew all that. Uh, I don't think he really ever drew him besides on this cover. Um, but his aware. monster, his monster looks great. So even though it's not as uh, detailed as we saw the Mayrick monster in the earlier uh, the black and white um, uh, story that we did, I, I really like this cover. So I gave it a B. Uh, if I see this cover, I pick it up because of the mashup of Iron Man and the Frankenstein monster. And uh, it's not quite an iconic cover, so I didn't give it an A. Going by the the kind of standard uh, protocol here on Back to the Bins, but definitely a solid B. Uh, the artwork, again, I'm going to be the outlier. I gave it a B. I like Tuscan Iron Man. And between Shellhead, the technology, and the uh, the more grotesque aspects of the story, I think he's in his element, and I really liked it. Um, the, as far as the story, I, I gave it a C+. The plus is really more for the mixing of the very typical Iron Man stuff from this era, uh, the Cold War stuff, dealing with the Mandarin, um, you know, stuff like that, with the more the monster-slash-horror aspects. This is a very typical sort of pacing and the way that um, Matt Lowe balanced the main plot with the subplot. This is very standard for this era of Iron Man. This is the way that the book is paced. So it doesn't stand out from the issues that come before it or after it as far as storytelling is concerned. But I, it's fun while it lasts. It's a, I think it's a good story. Overall, I gave it a, a B minus. I think it's, a, like I said, a kind of standard issue of Iron Man from the era with a very strange guest star. I like the cliffhanger. I like the subplots. Even the Cold War era stuff I thought was pretty good because it's um, it kind of speaks to the era of Iron Man. 
Obviously, your mileage may vary on that. And I have to give it uh, at least a good grade because there's a Marvel Godzilla house ad inside of it. So that's a plus. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to totally agree with you 100% on the cover. B, maybe even B+. Plus. Val Mayrick really does a great job on Frankenstein and a surprisingly good job on Iron Man considering he just was not a, really a superhero guy. Uh, and, and the color palette for the cover is really sharp. Uh, good good contrast between the bright color that these little misshapen elf guys are wearing and then the somber-looking background. I, th- I think it pops and, you know, again, not quite iconic, but really solid. Uh, story-wise, uh, I love Bill Mantlo's stuff. I really enjoyed it while, while he was writing. And I think what he did was he, he really took a change of pace here and... and 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 did it well. He moved it in, you know, moved him into this monster territory uh, without missing a beat. Story moves along pretty quickly uh, and, and leaves you wanting more when it's over. So I'm going to say a B on the story as well. Uh, but, you know, and again, Luke, I, I apologize if I was too dismissive of your opinion, but I really... No, I, I, I expect nothing less on Back to the Bins for than my opinions to be dismissed out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I, I just have to totally disagree with you because I just do not like George Tuska. I'll give credit where it's due, in my opinion, that you were correct on, on some of the storytelling aspects of it. But I don't like the way he drew the monster at all. I don't like the way he looks with his hippie hair. And, you know, it, it looks like he, he should have a, a, a tie-dyed shirt on and, and be at a Grateful Dead concert or something. Yeah, he looks more like... Um brother power the geek than he does frankenstein's monster uh the 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 dwarves are just i don't know i don't like their look uh he he does okay with tony stark and i I think you you did hit it scott that it it looks a little bit like frank robbins especially when he's in the flames and stuff um and and depending on which of us you're talking to that could be an insult or a compliment um i don't i don't like the way it's inked i i think that the thick lines I don't know. I don't know. I just don't. I don't think he. I don't, again, I don't think he did Tusk any favors with that. Uh, I'm, I mean, I don't think it's an F. I, I think it's a. It's just C minus on the artwork. So overall, I guess it would be like a B minus for the book. We ended up with the same grade there, Paul. Yeah, we just got there through a different route. <laughs> different routes, yeah. <laughs> Bill, what do you think? Uh, looking at the cover, this I think I think we're all. So far, we're falling all in the same spot on the cover, and that that's going to be a B. Uh, that that is, I like. It's you could see, or it, it Iron Man looks somewhat metallic, which he should, being called Iron Man, with the way he's drawn, or or the way that they it's it's been inked in, or just it looks good. He looks good. Um, the monster looks good. The dwarves, meh. <laughs> I didn't know they're all, you know, they're all color coordinated. I guess it was like wear your purple shirt to work day. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm gonna give that a B. The art, I'm not a super Tusca fan, but I'm not a super Tusca hater. I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> so for me, it's I'm gonna give it a C minus on, on the art. I, I do. There there are a few panels that do stand out, like the one. On page 27, where Iron Man's in shadow just before he gets zapped. I like that one. Um, looking out through the visor, like Gene had pointed out. And, and like I said earlier, where uh, the he's being watched by the deer. <laughs> and, and you're right, that whole sequence, I didn't really catch it the first time around, how it 
conveys how he falls down the mountain. So, but so yeah, C. I'm gonna give it a C for the art, and then the story. <laughs> the story's pretty fun. Uh, it's nice to introduce a horror concept into a superhero concept, and and how they mix. I, I think this was done a little bit better than the other book we had, than the Marvel Team Up book. It it was it was more. It flows better. It's not doesn't feel so forced like the other one was. Although essentially the same thing happens is our hero just magically appears in, you know, after he gets shot down, he appears with these with these creatures, with these monsters. But it just seemed more, I guess, plausible. There was no Baron Von Stoop <laughs> to move the plot along. So I'm going to give the story, I'm going to give it a B as well. So that puts it at like a, I guess, a B minus. So Who's we're, left? We're, so we're pretty much three for three on. Uh... Yeah, B minus here. Scott, what do you think? Just say B minus and move along. <laughs> um, I like the cover. I the those the dwarf guys really disturb me like a lot. But I'm trying to be fair. It's like, is it bad art? No, it's just that they're 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 goddamn creepy. You know, I mean, just I think really they're supposed disturbing. to be creepy. Yeah. And that that one that's about the club Iron Man there, he looks. Who's that lead singer of Aerosmith? Because that's really <laughs> that's, that's Chris's yeah. brother Steve. Yeah, he's he's just messed up looking. Um, take them out of the equation and make it just the monster and just Iron Man. And I mean, you got pretty much an A cover on this, but adding those disturbing damn elements into it takes it down a notch for me um i'd probably say um probably say a b maybe a b minus but i mean i I really enjoy it a lot i I like the look of the monster i mean this is pretty much uh merrick's monster and uh and i like that and i really like uh the way iron man's illustrated here as bill said he looks like he's made of metal as he should and you know that that was not an easy feat to pull off back in these days when you had such a limited uh, color palette and things like that. But I really like how he looks there. So uh, yeah, I'll say B for the cover. I really like that. Um, the story, um, you know, like Paul, I'm also a, a Bill Mantlo mark. I really like Bill Mantlo stuff. Sometimes it gets pretty wacky and far out, and this one definitely does. So. You know, this is at kind of the wackier end of Bill Mantlo, but I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever read a Bill Mantlo story that I didn't get something out of, you know, some measure of enjoyment out of it. So, you know, I, I get something out of this one as well. It's just not one of his better stories, I think. Um, but I kind of remember, vague, you know, in vague terms where the story goes, and it, it was a fun little story. So I think I'd probably say, uh, I'd probably say a C plus for the story. I mean, it's it's a little better than average. Um, where this book completely falls apart for me is the art. Um, I'm sorry, Luke. I can't stand George Tuska. Um, this is what has prevented me from reading this entire era of Iron Man. I really like Iron Man a lot. I've really come to appreciate him the older i get and and i've been you know steadily adding to my iron man collection but even when i come across like really cheap issues of iron man i'm talking like 50 cent bin stuff if it's from this era i kind of tend to skip it i just don't like his art it just it does absolutely nothing for me at all it it looks to me 
Uh, it always has a very um, rushed and amateurish and like fill in feel like they just, you know, like they just couldn't get anybody else kind of thing. And I mean, I know he has his fans and everything, but I just, I, I look at this and, you know, I always try to find the merits in any artist and I try to find, you know, what was he going for? And even though I don't like it, you know, was he a good draftsman? You know, did he have a good sense of composition or storytelling or whatever? And I, I can't help it. I look at this and I don't find any of that in this. It's just, it's so by the numbers and workmanlike to, to my eyes. It, it's just, it, it's just not aesthetically pleasing. And as much as I hate the dwarfs in this and, and kind of dismiss them when I look through and go back through the pages, those dwarfs constantly size change throughout the entire thing. Sometimes they're like Yoda size or even smaller, and then other times they're they're basically just like short people, and it's it's back and forth and back and forth throughout the entire thing, and so yeah, that that looks really freaky to me. And then uh, the Dread Knight's horse at the end of the thing, I don't know what he was going for here, but it just. I don't know that that looks really bizarre to me as well, but I mean not like in a in a good bizarre. It's almost like fantasy comics at that point. Um, so the art really kind of kind of lost me on this one. Um, I, I got to be honest, I, I think I'd give the artist a, a D. It's not quite failing because you know I can still follow as long as I can follow an art. You know the the artist's work and and it's still sequential more or less. Then I you know I don't want to give them a straight up failing grade, but it's damn close because it's just you know it, it's just not pretty to me. It's not uh, visually pleasing. So I don't I don't know what the hell does that average out to. It's getting late. I don't know. I don't know. Sounds, sounds like maybe a C. C. G? All right, Gene. Okay. Well. Uh... I'm going to have to make it unanimous on the cover that that's a B cover to me. That's uh, I see that I pick it up off the stands. It's Iron Man looks great. The monster looks menacing and super powerful like he's supposed to. Yeah, the the Steven Tyler and the rest of Aerosmith look a bit weird, but yeah, it's it's part of the story. So I guess it had to be there. I don't know. Uh, as far as the interior art goes, uh, I'm going to have to go with just a straight-up C on this, because it had some good points. It had some not-so-good points, but on, on it's average, really. And I may not be super exposed to a lot of comics from this area, era, but to me, that looks like you know average 77 superhero art. Uh, the story, though, the story is pretty decent, because it's... This is a bridging issue. We're getting, we're done with the Mandarin storyline that was in 100. We're going, transitioning into bringing in a new villain who is an update of an existing villain. So you have to get from point A to point B. And it does it really well, actually. And I, I, I went ahead and read the next issue after this, where you find out that the, uh, the Baroness von Frankenstein is actually Gene Wilder's daughter. <laughs> because she's, she says that her great-grandfather was Victor Frankenstein, and that's young Frankenstein's grandfather. So she must be Gene Wilder's daughter. Yes. Clearly. And, and just for, you know, the young Frankenstein reference, I, I would say the whole 
the story on a whole gets you from there here to there, accounts for all the subplots that are going on. That would be a B. So um, guess what the average is? B minus. B minus. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad the book got some discussion, even if uh, I'm the one who's the outlier again. So no real shock there. And but you again, we got we we may have taken circuitous routes to get to the same place, but we got to the same place. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that makes you an outlier. It just means that we disagree about the uh, merits of George Tuska's art. Is really the only thing about it. I think I appreciate Bill Mantlo's writing a little more than you do, and you appreciate George Tuska's art a lot more than well, I do. I, I like Mantlo's writing. It's just this, this issue is his his run has all it, it's it's the same type of pacing. If you read one hundred two, it's kind of the same thing. We get okay. We have this many pages in the main plot, and then we got to check in on our subplots, and we got to get back to the main plot, and then we need a flashback, and then we uh, denouement, you know. So his 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 run on Iron Man coming after Archie Goodwin, it's it's good, and he does a lot of uh, interesting stuff. After the stuff with Frank the Frankenstein monster and the Dread Knight, we transition into Madame Mask and uh, Mordecai Midas, which again is is stuff that I like, but a lot of um, a lot of Iron Man fans, especially folks who came in. In, in my experience, uh, readers who came in during the Kurt Busiek, uh era in Heroes Return really turned their nose up at anything before Bob and Dave, Midas being part of it, to the point when uh, Mordecai Midas appears in Shadow in um, Iron Man Volume 3, Number 1. There were people at the time were like, oh, sweet Christmas, they cannot bring in Midas. I'll drop the book in an instant if they do. And they never really did bring in Midas, so that was kind of a, uh, an empty threat that they never had to deal with, but... You know, it's 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 kind of part and parcel of the era of Iron Man. It was it was a a B list book for Marvel, so they could get away with doing stuff like this that was offbeat because it wasn't an A list book. It wasn't like it was Avengers or um, you know uh, Spider Man or uh, I'm trying to think the other books in the late seventies. Well, like, I, uh, I, even I, the X Men. I, I, I take like some that. issue with that. I understand that Iron Man isn't the household name that other heroes are, but even back then. You know, people want to give Robert Downey credit, Robert Downey Jr. credit for every aspect of Iron Man's popularity now. And I don't think that's fair because, yes, it wasn't the A book. It wasn't Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four or the X-Men. But you know what? Iron Man was one of the big three in the Avengers even back then with Captain America and Thor. Yeah. So it's not like he was... You know, a, a lesser hero. He he was still a very significant hero back then, and and like I said, oh, yeah. I take some issue he, with people well, treating him as if he was a nothing until Robert Downey Jr. came along. Well, well, again, and and coming and I and coming from where I came from, where I was the one railing against people, uh, the the changes being made to Iron Man's continuity to fit in with the movies. I, I don't fall into that category. What I'm saying is that clearly for Marvel, the book was was a B level book. I mean, at one point it went bi monthly. So, you know, they, 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 the sales just weren't there uh, compared to the books that were selling at the time at this point before uh, Leighton and Michelinie came in. Now, once Leighton and Michelinie came in, the books very quickly became a book that Marvel gave a lot more attention and, uh, and care and affection and feeding to. I mean, that becomes clear because once they come in, then you got the first Bob and Dave run. And then uh, you go through, um, you know, that's when uh, Denny O'Neill comes in and we get the whole thing with Rhodey and then runs through issue 200. Bob and Dave come back and then, uh, you know, uh, John Byrne uh, takes over for a while with his, his run on the book. 
And then all through that point, the book was being pushed as an A superhero book right through Len Kaminsky's run, which led into The Crossing. I mean, so you're talking a solid decade worth of comics there, yeah, running I, from I, the late 70s into the, the, into the very early 90s. So I, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the, the dismiss, people that dismiss this era of Iron Man and earlier, the, the, um, you know, the, the Stan Lee and Larry Lieber era and then Archie Goodwin's era, a lot of them just haven't read it. I think that's what it kind of comes down to is that we're familiar with the Bob and Dave stuff because those are, you know, that that's demon in a bottle and armor wars and, you know, the fighting against um, uh, Justin Hammer. And that's the stuff that people know because that's those gets touted as, oh, these are the best Iron Man stories from the 70s. And, and they are. But that's not to simply dismiss out of hand the stuff that happened before Bob and Dave. And I think that's a, a disservice as a reader to do that. Because a lot of the stuff that, I mean, uh, if, you, if you take a look at what Archie Goodwin did, a lot of the stuff that everyone thinks, oh, Bob and Dave innovated that for Iron Man, Archie Goodwin did years before. So I, I totally kind of, agree with you on that. And, and, and I don't think we should be judging the merits of our heroes and characters solely on sales and whether or not yeah. they were at risk of being canceled at one time. Because, you know what, possibly the most bankable star out there right now, uh, as far as making money is probably Batman. And there was a point in, in the 60s where he was at risk of being canceled. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. And like I said, when I, when I say a B-level book, that's not an indication of quality. That's just an indication of you could tell what books they wanted you to care about. It's the same way now. It's the exact same way now. You read the solicits, and uh, I don't know why you bother reading Marvel solicits nowadays, but mm -hmm. that's neither here nor there. But if you read the solicits, it's clear what books are there A books and what books are there B books and what books are there ones to, you know, make people happy on the internet. And that's, you know, if they're making money that way, more power to them. I'm not going to get off on a rant because every time I get off on a rant, I'm back to the bins. I say something stupid and people make fun of me. So I'm simply going to stop there and say, if you haven't checked out the Archie Goodwin and Bill Mantlow eras of Iron Man, give them a try. You can usually find them fairly inexpensively. You might enjoy them. I agree. I think that's diplomatic enough. And I agree. With <laughs> so we've made the peace made now. After after we yeah. <laughs> as uh, next time, uh, what are we hitting? Vampires or or uh, I think I think we go to vampires next one. Vampires. <laughs> yes. So next time on an all new Back to the Bins, join us for Vampire Week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to two true freaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the two true site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Wait, <laughs> where are you going? I was gonna make espresso. 